Hey everyone, welcome to the start. This is the season finale. This is the last episode with a guest um, for season four. And I'm going to make this intro really brief because this episode is quite long. It is with a fantastic designer. Um, His name is Dwayne King. Dwayne is a little bit older than most of our other guests. Uh, In my opinion, it's not a bad thing. That actually means that he has substantially more experience. To give you a quick list of things Dwayne has done, he designed the logo for Quake 3, if you know that game, which most of you do. Uh, He's started two different businesses. He has also worked on the first website for Herman Miller, the I think one of the first websites for Neiman Marcus. He's done work with Nike. Dwayne has done work with a shit ton of awesome brands, and he's made a lot of awesome stuff. More importantly, though, Dwayne as a person is better than the work that he makes, if that makes sense. Dwayne is a fantastic guy. I'm happy and honored to be able to call him a friend. I think he's a really cool person. And for someone that I've known for a very short period of time, comparative to my other friends, uh, he's probably given me more knowledge on design and on what it means to be a professional in the design and development industry than any books I've ever read, than any person I've ever met, any conference talk I've ever went to. He's just, he's a, he's a wealth of knowledge. Um, and he's a really cool guy. And He's really fun. He's from Texas. He's such a nice dude. Honestly, I hope all of you listeners, uh, one time or another, have a chance to meet him or go to a talk he's doing or maybe experience some of his work for yourself. Um, actually, fun fact, if you if you guys remember the Nike project or site, it was called uh, Better World. It was like one of the first parallax sites where like you start scrolling and shoes are like falling and then the shoe folds up. That was Dwayne. Dwayne designed that, and Dwayne uh, worked on it with his uh, buddy and his previous partner at King Coyle, Ian Coyle. But um, so that's enough about this episode. As I mentioned, this is the season finale. The one after this is going to be the recap episode. Uh, I thank you guys for listening. I really, really do appreciate everyone being here. If you can uh, rate, review, or share this podcast with any of your friends, um, or just help you know spread the love, it'd be really appreciated. Uh, you can always reach out to me at the Start FM on Twitter. Again, this episode is with Dwayne King. Thanks for listening. This is the Start. Hey, Dwayne. Thanks for joining me on the show. I appreciate you uh, joining me and taking some time out of your day. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Um, In the pre-show, you mentioned that your wife is taking your cat for a walk. So I have a question about that. You're the first person I've heard of that takes their cat for a walk. Is that a common thing? I don't have a cat, so I don't know. Um, No, but uh, somehow I ended up adopting a cat from a coworker um, who it's a rare breed this the newest cat breed it's called a savannah and it's a um it's a cat a domestic cat that's bred with an african serval and so uh they're 
very wild, frankly, and uh, restless, and they're always uh, on the hunt. And they're like, it's we always joke that she's like our dog cat because she has a bunch of dog like tendencies. And one of them is uh, walking on a leash. She also plays fetch. Really? That's actually, I mean, that's pretty cool, though. <laughs> it is. And she also likes walking so much. She's so restless that she has a, a treadmill that's like basically like a human, almost not human size, but a four foot tall hamster yeah. wheel, wheel that she uh, walks Holy cow. That's really cool. Um, do you oh, guys also let the cow outside outside on its own? On a leash, yeah. We we have a tie down in the backyard with like a dog kind of gotcha. uh, lead, uh, like a twenty yeah, foot yeah, yeah. lead. And whenever uh, I work in the yard, she'll she's out there. Yep. Yeah, I uh, I had a cat growing up. His name was Peaches because he was a stray and it was an all black cat. So when I physically lifted up the cat to look at its at its you know it what sex it was, I couldn't see anything because it was all black. So I was like, all right, it's a girl. Uh, your name is Peaches. And then when we went to the vet, the vet was like, nope, you have a boy cat. And I'm like, his name is Peaches. It's not changing. Um, but we lived, uh, where we lived in Central Florida was r- right behind Lake Toho. I don't know if you've ever heard of that lake. Um, if you've, have you ever heard of like the Bass Pro Tour? Yes. So they, every year they're in Kissimmee and they're on that lake that we live behind. But needless to say, it's a very large lake, but there's a lot of just wildlife. So uh, everything from possums to birds to whatever. And I know that the cat has literally dragged, dragged, presented uh, animals in half at our front door and at our back door. I've seen my cat uh, stare, no joke, at like uh, like a canary, like a bright yellow bird, very much like Tweety Bird, um, and just staring at it pensively from like the ground while the bird was trying to get out of our uh, enclosed patio. The door was open. The bird was just like too high. And then 10 minutes later, there's like yellow feathers in the cat's mouth. No joke. This cat was, was very, um, he was, the cat was also sort of, uh, we had a dog as well. So I think the cat had like dog, similar dog tendencies. Um, but the last thing the cat would do is that the cat would eat food with his hands. It would scoop it up and put it into its mouth. No way. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was really cool. And to me it was normal because that's just how it ate. And I, you know, I didn't ever have a cat prior to that. So I'd be like, yeah, they, I tell my friend like peaches eats with the hands. They're like, what? That's so crazy. Cats aren't supposed to do that. I'm like, mm, peaches does it. It's pretty cool. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. Um, all right. So I'm really happy to have you on the show. Uh, for the listeners, Dwayne and I have worked together on one uh, sort of big, sort of small project. And it's been really, really fun. Uh, and Dwayne is someone who... Just in terms of someone in the industry, I've, I've kept an eye on because I was like, oh, man, like he and Dwayne will get into this. He ran an agency called uh, King Coil. And Dwayne, correct me if I'm wrong. I think then you guys uh, became a part of or partnered with Huge. Um, and I was like, oh, my God, it's even bigger now. Like he's he's going to touch even more stuff. Um, and then I went to the Brooklyn Point Oak Conference. And that's when I got to finally meet Dwayne in person. And and we sort of kept in touch since then. And I Dwayne has given me a little bit little tidbits here and there of his of his life. Uh Dwayne is a bit older than some of the other guests. So it means and he said this pre-show, uh I think you said 24 years you've been doing this. You've been uh, a professional or a yeah, a professional designer. Or trying um, to be. Yeah, well, if it, to put perspective on this, I'm 27. Right. Well, yes. So for you've you've been a working designer almost as long as I've been alive. The only thing I've done 
anywhere near as long as that. And it might be like 15 or 18 years is play basketball. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah. My, yeah. my first design job was in uh, 1994. Holy cow. All right. So before, before we get into that, why don't we um, let some of the listeners who don't know who you are uh, learn about you. So do you want to give yourself like a brief introduction? Sure. Um, it's also kind of a strange place to start in many ways because I don't know as much about what I am right now. Um, <laughs> yeah. But uh, that said, I, I think that, um, you know, as you were saying in my most recent past, um, I've been uh, running an agency uh, with a creative partner, Ian Coyle. Um, six years ago, uh, we started, uh, I moved to Portland, Oregon, and uh, Ian and I had done a couple projects together, um, and all of a sudden we uh, did a couple of websites for Nike, uh, three in a row. Our first three projects here in Portland were uh, Nike snowboarding, Nike skateboarding, and then Nike, Holy Be- cow, that's awesome. Nike Better World. And they happened to be all these non-flash websites for Nike, and okay. uh, that set up a career as a interactive designer here in Portland. So that's kind of my most recent, uh, identity and the, the, the shorthand version of uh, my current self is that I'm an interactive creative director and designer. Cool. Um, you didn't, did you move to Portland with the intention of working with Nike or was that just a happy coincidence due to location? Um, yeah, Portland was very much, uh, a whim. Uh, I knew I had a couple friends here and I actually had, uh, a kind of a point in my life where everything exploded at once mm-hmm. and, a, and a, unfortunately in a bad way. Um, I w- had, uh, uh, a luxury branding boutique that I ran. Um, I was living in Santa Fe, New Mexico, and I had an office in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and commuted between the two places. And uh, all of a sudden, the bottom dropped out. Uh, 2008, uh, the economy shifted. Luxury branding became... Uh, a, a true luxury. Um, <laughs> and... Uh, I and I also in at the same exact time there was a, there was a little bit of a downturn in the economy and then my parents uh, got sick and I oh, wow. I lost both of my parents in the a very short course of time and then oh, while gosh. while I was taking care of them in the end of their life um, I uh, lost my business uh, my partner. Uh, and I kind of, whatever, had differences of opinion and differences sure. of ability to uh, kind of, I guess, sell the product that we had at that time. Yep. And uh, all of a sudden, I was left with, uh, I was living in the desert, and I had a desert of opportunity. And I kind of realized, I either need to move to New York, or maybe Portland because I fell in love with the outdoors. Um, I grew up in the country, um, and wanted to get back to, uh, kind of open spaces. Um, but I thought, well, maybe I could move to Portland. Maybe I could work at Nike. Maybe I could work at widening (laughs) Kennedy. Um, and so I, but I'd never been here. And two of my, two friends of mine had already, uh, moved here. Um, Frank Shamiro um, and uh, Ian Coyle, um, my old business partner. And so 
I tweeted, hey, Portland, I'm coming to visit you. And uh, Wyden and Kennedy responded and said, hey, while you're in town, can you come and speak to us? And Oh, I, wow. And That's I was nice. like, well, yeah, that would be amazing. And <laughs> I've actually got nothing planned. I can totally do that. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, I came here and I happened to, I, I stayed with Frank for a week and looked at houses and uh, thought about it. And it felt... It was, for one, it was beautiful. It smelled like roses. It was, uh, you know. Versus pee like New York. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. Um, it, it was uh, fun. There was a sense of community. Uh, you know, I uh, hung out with uh, Kate Bingham and Bert, um, and always with Honor, Tyler and Elsa Lang while I was here in town. And I just instantly sensed, like, a, I felt a sense of belonging. And then all of a sudden I had this amazing, like, uh, agency that I admired, um, yeah. saying, Hey, will you come and say hi? So I did. And I ended up speaking to, uh, uh, turned into uh, to a speaking event for me and Frank and Ian. Um, oh, that's great. And it was for, uh, WK 12, um, which is like their little, uh, incubator of sorts. They create, uh, uh, it's 12 elite students uh, from around the world. They assemble a little team and uh, they tackle real world agency problems and come up with creative solutions. But we spoke to those people. Um, and while I was there, um, uh, I was like, hey, do you, you know, who do I talk to about a job? <laughs> right. Let me do your employment office, please. Exactly. Right as I said that, we, we were walking by uh, the recruitment officers, the creative recruiters' uh, desk, and they were like, "It's her." And it turned out that I had met her through LinkedIn, um, maybe six months before, for because oh, wow. of a project that I, uh, a blog that I had launched. And anyways, all of a sudden that one thing led to another and, uh, they were, they were entertaining. There was a discussion about employment, uh, that turned into, uh, a project, which was Nike better world. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's really cool. Um, I want to, I want to pull out a piece of that story where you said you grew up, uh, in like an outdoorsy kind of place. Where'd you grow up? I grew up in uh, the hill country of Texas, a little bitty town called uh, Bernie. It was uh, about Bernie, like B E R, like Bernie Sanders, Bernie. No, uh, but that's how it's pr- pronounced. It's German. Okay. It's B O E R N E, and oh, okay. it's uh, kind of in between uh, Austin, San Antonio, Kerrville. It's uh, this very uh, oak strewn limestone hills um with junipers and uh grasslands to me it's the most beautiful part of texas granted i'm partial because i'm from that area sure. uh, but but it was really uh peaceful and idyllic and we lived on uh six acres um oh man i'm jealous i've been in my free time i look up plots of land to buy in upstate new york it, yeah, I mean, honestly, it, it was a it was a great kind of existence. Uh, my dad designed our. My dad's an engineer, and he, um, when I was young, uh, I think when I was in kindergarten, bought this piece of property. I was born in San Antonio, okay. um, and my dad worked there, and he had this dream of designing a home out in the country, and it, uh, he 
bought this piece of land when I was in kindergarten, and by third grade, we moved out there and uh, built a house that my dad had designed. And uh, we had three acres uh, up front that we lived on, and the back three acres we would have animals on. And oh, so that's amazing. Just small amounts of animals. Sure. I mean, two two yeah. cows. Yeah, manageable for a husband and wife and kid. Yeah. Exactly. And it would uh, we would cycle through every year or two what those animals might be. It would be two horses, two cows, uh, 25 what, when, when you say cycle through, what do you mean? So like with uh, a cow, are you saying that it would be slaughtered? Yes, or, we, we ate okay. the cows. Um, That's fair. And, but what about like the horses? Did you eat the horses? No, I'm not going to judge you. Horses the horses were uh, on loan. Yeah. Oh, wait, people do that? You can like basically like lease a horse like you do a car? No, but sometimes people uh, need a, a place to keep their animal. Maybe, oh, maybe okay. they're out right. of town for like a year, traveling gotcha. year so like or a something. house guest kind of thing. Exactly. It, it was a, a Airbnb for horse, horses. Yeah, that was, that's really cool. That makes sense though. I guess like there's only so many places you can keep a horse. Exactly. And it to some – the horse itself probably does not need – supervision but everything about it right like cleaning it feeding it making sure it doesn't get stolen or killed or whatever that makes all right that that makes total sense was your dad uh you said he's an engineer but he designed a house too so is he an architect no he just uh his his roots in engineering uh were during the the space race um and oh, so wow that's really neat it was all uh that's kind of what got him into it and that's a, in a way that's kind of what got me into design because um when i was young he was always uh drafting he had a drafting table and would draw and you know i was fascinated by the electrical erasers and uh the t-square and my, my yeah could had really great uh rendering skills and uh i became kind of obsessed with drawing and in fact my very first uh paying gig was, uh, his, for his company when I was, uh, he was an ocean engineer and he designed, uh, the submarine that, uh, picked up the Titanic. Holy shit. Yeah. That's so cool. All kinds of other weird projects, but, um, one of them was a, a wire rope testing machine for, um, elevators. Um, uh, basically those big giant cables, they have to wear them out and find out their load and, uh, limits yep. and everything. And they had all of these, uh, plans of this thing that were architectural views and they needed someone to take all of the elevations and create a three dimensional drawing for a presentation. And so I got 300 bucks when I was in eighth grade. That's a crap ton of money. It was a lot, you know, to draw yeah. this like weird machine in perspective. The amount of candy and toys you can buy with $300 as an eight-year-old is like, oh man. Yeah. So it was uh, both, uh, it was the, the kind of genesis of my love of uh, drawing, which uh, led to uh, a hint that maybe I could make money at it. Mm -hmm. Um, and then later, uh, that led to, uh, kind of college and, uh, a uh, stumbling into, uh, design. <laughs> so what did you, what did you end up, um, well, it, it sounds like drawing for you was a hobby throughout, right? Um, I was very similar except, um, 
a very short tangent on me. Uh, in fourth grade, I won like an award in the county. And in Central Florida, we were in a really big county. Uh, so I won, I drew like a parakeet with its wing with its wing open. I'm pretty sure my mom still has it. But that won like this huge county award, which is a big deal in my family. And then every time I'd go up to New Jersey to see them, they'd be like, draw me. Can you draw me? Just draw me sitting here. And I, I got into this position where I stopped drawing because people were forcing me to draw when I didn't want to, right? I'm like hanging out at my grandma's. I'm like, I'm gonna go to the beach. I don't wanna draw anything. Um, so I stopped, but it sounds like you continued, which is great. Um, and you say that you stumbled into it. It was stumbled into a career in design. What did you end up going to college for? Well, um, uh, you know, drawing, drawing was the, the real, uh, I guess, genesis of it, uh, um, for me. And it started, you know, I don't know, maybe when I was five or something like that. Um, mm-hmm. it, it was clear that I had kind of a, 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 a gift for, for drawing and, um, but I didn't know how that, when I, when it was time to go to college, I had zero sense of uh, career in graphic design. I didn't really even know that it was a trade. Um, and, but I'd grown up looking back, I looked back at my sketchbooks and I'm like, all I drew was like, surfboard logos and skateboard logos. Yeah, I did the same thing. <laughs> you know, uh, and it's kind of funny because I clearly had a, a fascination with graphic design. I just didn't know yep. what it was. Um, and so I took a, my first semester in college, I took a figure drawing class um, mm. and uh, just very randomly. And it was a pretty advanced class to, to to be your first art class. It was sure. probably like a yeah. second or it wasn't third like year. It was like color theory or like right. shading. It wasn't yeah. drawing one, you know, yeah. um, and these were experienced students. Um, and I realized that I, even without training, my, my rendering skills were competitive, that I had yeah. some sort of weird advantage. Um, and I was like, well, huh, maybe, maybe I'm going to be an art artist, um, and was taking like psychology classes and, uh, like color theory, but psychology and perception classes, psychology, and then, uh, a lot of like drawing and sculpture classes. And, uh, and my mom happened to, by the way, uh, a side note, uh, my mom happened to work at the university, uh, that I, uh, went to, attended and had which worked- one did you go to? A, a school called University of Texas at San Antonio. Um, okay. And I went there for like a year and a half. Um, mm-hmm. And uh, they didn't have a graphic design program. So I was taking fine art classes and kind of figuring out, wow, I might be an artist. <laughs> and uh, and my mom uh, having a, uh, being deeply embedded in that school, uh, she was there from its, uh, very beginnings. Um, so she knew all the professors, knew all the administrators, uh, and was able to, I mean, the moment I took a court, a, a, a test, she could, I could go to her office and she would be like, I can log into the system and see your grades. <laughs> so she could either like praise you or scold you immediately. Exactly. After you take the test. And I don't know how your early schooling was, but mine was, there was a lot of uh, drinking and goofing off involved. And so yeah. uh, that wasn't exactly the coolest thing to have your mom <laughs> be able to like log in and find out everything about you at the drop of a hat. Um, so, so, uh, some friends of mine uh, heard about a school in uh, North Texas near Dallas uh, called the University of North Texas. And uh, 
they had a graphic design program and I had just discovered through a, a job my, at the same time that I started college, I got a job at a silk screening shop and was that, was that on purpose or was that just like, I need a job and they hired you? I needed a job and it was drawing. And so I, I was the, uh, it kind of involved like uh, taking somebody's logo and cleaning it up. So it could yep. be silk screened on a shirt in within a week, you know, so it was real fast yep. turn kind of stuff. Um, and, uh, it was, we actually had a photo, uh, compositor for, uh, lettering and, uh, what is a, what is a photo? Compositor? Exactly. I know. I, yeah. I, I knew I was going to have to explain this one. <laughs> I'm totally dating myself too. It's uh, this, this was all pre computers. Um, and, uh, the way that typesetting was done at that time, uh, well, in a, a probably a mid grade execution of it. it another uh, in professional settings, it was linotype machines and metal mm-hmm. type setting. But in this case, it was uh, a, a reel of uh, photo type. It was an alphabet on a reel, and you literally would uh, there was a, it would project light through a negative onto mm-hmm. a surface and you focused and made this the size of your font whatever you wanted by the height of the camera from the the from the from the surface yep yeah and you exposed a letter at a time and you'd go you know letter l and then you know reel it to letter e expose letter m wow expose and one at a time put a photochemical on a piece of paper Mm-hmm. expose it briefly next letter and you did all the kerning and everything yourself by by hand and it, and it holy cow that that was when i realized that uh an o wasn't a circle and yeah. that uh there was a difference between times and helvetica and garamond and palatino and that uh all of those subtleties became fascinating to me. And that became the, like the genesis of my understanding of that design was a thing and that somebody had actually drawn every single one of those letters and that it wasn't just a word that you were looking at in a font, but that it was a bunch of drawings with a bunch of history and And intention as well. Mm -hmm, Exactly. I could only imagine what like a 20 something year old kid like comes to that conclusion. They're like, Oh my God, the world has purpose. Yeah. And it, and it's like, Jesus just came down and was like, it is you Dwayne. Exactly. And also understand uh, that, that because there wasn't a computer, there wasn't uh there wasn't a sense of typography, right? Like yeah. no, you didn't even know the name of times, right? It was just, on, Oh yeah. It was just get- on things. Yeah, and I guess the only way you know is if like the container that held that reel had it on. Like it, it's all exactly very much like matter of fact. There was there was no way to research that, and we didn't have Word or email program or anything where you could have a pull down menu and you could see eight, ten, twelve, fourteen, sixteen, eighteen. Yeah. You know, yeah. you didn't even know there wasn't even an idea of type sizes. It was how high you uh, focus a camera to a surface. So now. I'm I'm curious. What year was this? This was uh, year range. If you were 1988. That's the year I was born. Okay, <laughs> so there you go. Yeah, so 1988. I was, uh, and uh, I guess I was 18, 19, um, and 
so, so uh, there you go. You can do the math and figure out my age now. Um, <laughs> um, but it was it was an interesting um, introduction to the world of graphic design and the idea that these logos. I also was having to again take a really bad reproduction of a logo. Somebody might bring in a shirt that had an embroidered logo on it, and I might have to like redraw that logo, which could have been the AT&T logo, whatever, because it, sure. at the time there wasn't, nobody had EPS files of like, here's my logo. They didn't even know yeah. it was called a logo. There wasn't a word for all, all these things didn't have a vocabulary for me. Yeah. They, they, I'm sure yeah, they, you know, if you worked at Pentagram, yes, they did. Um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. But being in Texas and being at a small shop, being a kid in college, like giving it context, you barely know what the design industry is because, right, you're still in school and all this kind of stuff, and it's all just super new and nuanced. And, yeah, and the industry itself is, like, really brand new, too, you know, because yeah. it's only whatever. I, I, I mean, I, even as much uh, as I know about design history, I don't know a ton about the uh, business history of design. <laughs> um, yeah. But I know that it was early enough in it that uh, – only giant corporations had a sense of what a brand was, you know, <laughs> JC Penney's and American, Ex American <laughs> airlines and people like that would hire the, the really big Unimarks and stuff. But yeah. I don't think there, there wasn't tons of, uh, small independent yeah. studios. It sounds like there was a big gap. Very. Uh, it was like, if you were smaller, you, you, the brand you came about was through local means and that was, and then what they provided was maybe good, maybe not, but it's probably one of the few shops in the area kind of thing versus your multi-million dollar company. And you can, you can talk the same language with other multi-million dollar companies. Exactly. Kind of uh, um, you know, I think, I think because, again, with, with the lack of the internet, there wasn't an awareness of the, the industries that existed around this stuff. There was just what uh, a local exposure to yep. the sense of potential industries and careers. So being being a kid who drew from a little bitty town of not even, you know, 3,000 people in the city limits, um, it was a confusing place to be, you know, a member of the Future Farmers, and you were the one kid that drew. And so, I, I, again, I look back and... Um, you know, I, I, drew, I drew the covers of all my yearbooks, uh, uh, you know, from probably middle school on. And I did all the little section dividers, you know, for like our school newspaper and whatever. And I had a, a, a magnetism towards the industry, but I didn't know what it was. It was just a, a and no one could tell me because no one in any of my layers of association had uh, any knowledge of that kind of industry. Yeah. You know, you were sort of pioneering it within your own small community kind of thing. Right. Um, yeah. I, from, uh, you know, at least within, uh, my, uh, my friends and family, yes. yeah. there was just no awareness of, uh, the, of art school, you know, you yeah. know, that, and so anyways, it was a kind of an interesting discovery to realize that I had um, a slight ability for it. And then later to uh, have the opportunity to go to design school. And, yeah. In, and uh, was that at the North Texas yeah. University and, or college? Uh -huh. And that school's full of like talented people, by the way. Um, it's produced people like uh, 
whatever. Dana Tonamachi, Woody Purtle. Oh, I know. So I know who she is. Secret Secret is out. I would love to have her on the show one day. Oh, yeah, I haven't, asked, I haven't asked her yet, so it's not like she's declined and I'm like prying. But she is definitely on the list of people I'd love to speak to. She's super cool. And actually, oddly, when I first met her, um, I knew her through Twitter, but we spoke at an event together in <laughs> Florida at the University of Florida. So there's oh, a connection yeah, for you. Funny. So, <laughs> uh, it all it all comes around full circle. I'm from Florida. You guys speak there. Oh, man. So great. Yeah. But um, um, all of a sudden, Sorry, I, keep going. But all of a sudden, I uh, ended up at this uh, school that had a really outstanding graphic design program. And for me, really, it was kind of, uh, I'm curious about this thing called design. And I want to get away from home where my mom can peek at my grades. And I want to be more independent. <laughs> yeah. And so um, off I went. And uh, I... Uh, Fell, I really fell in love with it and realized that that was uh, an even better application of my weird tendencies towards, yeah. uh, I, I guess, I, I, I love tight drawing. And, you know, I like to yeah. drafting type drawing. Um, and so hand rendering type, which is what we did then, everything. It wasn't <laughs> for novelty. It was by necessity. Um, and it, it was... Uh, uh, I, I loved it. You could get lost in it and it was craft oriented and yep. uh, it was a perfect fit for me. So what, um, I guess this is, this is a, a two questions in one. The first is, so you went to this school that had like a really good design program. I'm curious what that uh, comprised of at the time. And then what the expectation was after graduation around that time. And I say that because I, so um, I have a friend, his name is Joe. Joe is old enough to be my father, uh, but he's a designer. And he was telling me that like, when he was getting into design, you weren't called a designer. It was called like a, a commercial artist or something like that. I forget if, if that's the actual term, but he was, you know, he was, you're talking about like doing stuff at ad agencies where you sort of draw it or you paint it out, you cut it and you cut, and you glue things together and then you take a big, a big photo of it, this kind of stuff. So I'm curious what, uh, what they were teaching you. And then uh, also sort of what they were preparing you for and what they were setting your expectations for when you were going into the real world. Versus now we do, you know, you jump into sketch. Sketch came out two years ago. You know what I mean? Right. No, that that's that's true. It's it, it's drastically different. I mean, I think I, I think uh, I I still talk with a lot of students and review a lot of student portfolios, and um, I, I'm always a little bit perplexed by what eventuality we're preparing students for it's hard because you're so young when you like when you're in school uh it's the ira glass thing right um that, the gap yeah the gap and yeah. uh you, you all it's almost my schooling was very focused on the hows and less so the, the why so it was like technique and at the time that's what the career was really about was like yep. uh you know how to illustrate uh you know uh, uh, a placeholder for a photo because yep. uh, or how to uh greek type yeah, yep. like a lorem ipsum version of type in a sketch form which it's crazy that i even have to describe <laughs> that but i probably, probably do cool. I, I i probably should scary. say what that is um okay. but uh yeah, so the, the, the way that the curriculum uh, worked there is you started with uh, 
really just drawing type. And after you uh, had a, like a type one, type two class and some basic composition classes, and then those graduated into an illustration class, which illustration at the time was not what illustration is now. Illustration mm -hmm. was about doing marker drawings. Um, it was about story storyboarding and yep. about doing marker drawings for uh, to for FPO images because because okay. before the computer, <laughs> which is yeah, I feel like a dinosaur saying all this. No, man, you got but, so much knowledge. <laughs> it's so FPO. weird. I, I I say this. I think and. I'm in a position, I'm in a quote unquote privileged, privileged position because this podcast allows me to talk to a lot of people. Um, and I think a lot of people my age are, we're incredibly lucky that we've never had to do stuff before a computer or at least in a professional sense, right? Like, um, like if I were a programmer before stack overflow existed, I don't know what the hell I would have done. It, it's so hard because so many other, right. It's a community of answers. And you're in this position where there was no other way to do it. And I think it, it gives you um, much more knowledge of the industry, much more respect and love for it. And then at the end of the day, it probably makes you even better. Maybe. I mean, it definitely, it certainly makes me question a lot more about <laughs> uh, what we're doing. And, uh, but anyways, that's something that we'll, that we can get into later, yeah. but it certainly uh, it has given me a, a wide range of experiences and, and what the, it's almost, you know, I'm, I still haven't really distilled how much of it is like my own personal journey and how much of it is like the kind of evolution of the, the, tra the trade that we're in our industry. Yep. Um, but it feels like it started as a craft and a thing that was really about like uh, ownership of some almost like a, both a conceptual vision and a, a, a innate physical ability to make a line and have steady hands and glue things and assemble things in a physical sense <laughs> yep. that was more closely related to uh, what traditional arts at least felt like um, glue and scissors and <laughs> paint and ink. Um, it sounds like it's the, the image I'm getting in my head is an image of basketball, which is like, you have this amazing athlete like a Kobe Bryant, Michael Jordan, LeBron James, this incredible raw talent, and then you need someone to refine that talent, right? So they've they've got the skill, uh, but now we need to give them the technique to make them, you know, one of the quote unquote greats or just someone viable. It sort of sounds like that, right? Like a lot of, I would imagine a lot of these kids are probably uh, artistically inclined, but maybe they didn't have the appropriate techniques to execute something. Exactly. Or and, whatever. And I, and I think that people who couldn't, uh, th there was a really um, stringent screening process through our design program too. And there was a review in midway through and then a, a post uh, graduate or, or pre-graduation review. Um, and people would regularly get kicked out of the program, like a, a very high percentage, 30% or something. And yeah. you'd see people just be devastated. And it, but back the, at that, and it, at that time, it really was about a large percentage about hand skills um, mm -hmm. because there was a, a, it was such an important ingredient in the realization of an idea. Now, I think some of those people would have been, completely able to survive because there's tools that can help you shortcut. Yeah. yeah. You can envision a lot without 
having to be an artist, quote unquote, being able to draw, mm-hmm. um, and uh, and I can't discount, uh, you know, the the I now have a really strong appreciation for the value of ideas over just aesthetics. Um, yeah, but yeah. there was a time when aesthetics alone could be very, very high value, like sure. incredible, like, it, cause a lot of people just couldn't do that. And the idea part was something that was almost like you were just bringing life to life an idea. And so you could mm-hmm. be very high value in just an aesthetic position. And now yeah. I, I feel that that probably has flipped a great deal and that there is uh, the idea and the ability to realize it is, uh, is more uh, based on a, a, a team. It takes a village now to realize many of the things that we produce. Um, and they, uh, the authorship uh, can, I don't know, it shifts a, a lot. It's definitely more yeah. conceptually driven than visually driven, which doesn't mean that the visuals don't matter, but there's a, a, a I don't know, more of an accessibility, I think, to the, the trade. I, I think I get what you're saying. Um, everything you're saying, it, it sounds good. I don't disagree with it. Like, there's nothing there for me to disagree with. I th- uh, if I were to try to add to that, um, I feel like a few things happen now, right? We, we talk about uh, you being an interactive designer or a de- designer, right? Uh, previously, that would mean that you were very good at making things aesthetically pleasing, right? Whether it was physically by hand or using Photoshop or Sketch or whatever, uh, whether or not you could draw was irrelevant, but you could make a, a digital document look very good, be a very good representation of what it should be built as. Uh, now though, I think design is, that is included in design, but the idea of design is no longer just aesthetics. It's like how you design a business to be successful. Right. Uh, and at that point that could, that could mean everything from like finances and point of sale all the way to what the experiences is going to the restroom, um, as well as buying that product on a website that you also design. So I think you're right. Design has become now, at least it's, it's more about the idea and the execution of that idea through the entire process or experience and much less about the aesthetics of just one point of that. Exactly. I mean, I mean, uh, the, evolution of the, the the industry there was the idea of kind of whatever designer is artist for a while and the craftsman <laughs> and then it felt like multidisciplinary design and that originally was applied to the idea of like interactive and say advertising and visual aesthetics kind of coming together yep. for dot com boom kind of era <laughs> um and now I think it really is truly multidisciplinary and that, that, that design is more about like, sometimes I say like design with a capital D because it's like about the arrangement of like ideas. Um, an- another conversation I have with a, another friend of mine who's a, uh, Aisha Bursal, who's a Herman Miller designer. Um, mm-hmm. We talk often about how uh, beyond aesthetics is the aesthetics of ideas. Um, and, oh, that's interesting. I like that. Yeah, which is a really beautifully put in Aisha's way, um, kind of concise thought of like, yes, that is exactly it, is that it's about the beauty of uh, the idea instead of just the aesthetic beauty, uh, the, the, the surface beauty. It's, yep. it's, it's more cho- choreography, I guess, production, yeah. Dis- yeah, direction. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So anyways. Um, <laughs> Where did you... Um... 
so, so you went through this program yeah. up in North Texas. Yeah. Uh, what happened after that? Well, um, I had, uh, I'm trying not to throw anyone under the bus here, but, um, <laughs> I, I had, I had a really good, uh, you know, my, my education, um, definitely helped provide a basic, uh, the basic skills, uh, of, uh, aesthetics, but it did not prepare me for, uh, the business of design. Sure. I feel like that's college still does that today. I don't think anybody teaches you how to in that, in that regard or an example, they don't teach you how to sell design, right. Or present it or anything. That gap too, that IRA glass gap again, because also, can you even take that on? Like, like, you know, when you're still trying to learn the tools, yeah. do you, do you also need to like, uh, you know, know the, intricacies of the next layers uh, uh, um yeah I, I i get what you're saying i don't i think it's i think it's okay for young kids not to know how to sell design as long as they are in environments where they can learn agreed agreed yeah. but but i definitely all, all anyways I, I ended up winning an award for the best portfolio at my school um, oh that's great yeah it was really cool and I, there was like three thousand um gra- graphic design students at the time so it was definitely a big honor and uh I got into a, a kind of a, a a bidding war. I I actually entered a um, student design competition. Uh, we had a we. I was lucky that um, near my school, uh, Dallas was an hour away, mm-hmm. and uh, there was Dallas at the time had a design organization that was had a, a bigger membership than the AIGA nationally. Holy cow! Okay. Yeah, Dallas yeah. was a really big in the '80s um, center of design, um, and a had a like a visual aesthetic that was kind of, in a way, the the stepchild of maybe like uh, the Pushpin Group. You know, it was like an, a visual advancement of the '70s aesthetic into like a kind of '80s modern minimalism that was kind of almost like a Memphis influenced kind of yeah. thing. Anyways. Yeah. Um, like minimalism, but with a Southern charm kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, um, and uh, I took a job at a really prestigious um, design studio called uh, Sibley Petit. And uh, they're still around today. They're still great. Um, but I was the first student that they had ever hired. And so I was trying to finish. Uh, I had like... A, I think 12 hours left in my minor. I minored in English. Um, I uh, majored in, at the time, what was called graphic design. And you got to specialize in either uh, art direction or mm-hmm. graphic design. It was communications design, and you specialized in graphic design or advertising. Gotcha. Um, okay. And uh, for, for me at the time, advertising... I don't know. There was all these like undertones of like management and stuff that I just Mm -hmm. didn't want to do. I was like, no, I'm a back of the room designer. So I followed (laughs) this graphic design thing and I broke all the rules in my portfolio and ended up uh, winning an award for my portfolio. So it was kind of reassuring to me to like trust my own instinct and kind of uh, that my, my instructors meant well, but that also like I, uh, I don't know. You have to break things to kind of pioneer, right? You have to kind of uh, 
go against the grain and it's not just a senseless like a senseless uh, defiance of uh, rules but um i don't know it was a time to take a risk i did it, it felt right i did what i wanted and it ended up working out got this these job offers took the highest paying one was of trying course. of course um and uh was their first uh you know student and uh i worked on stuff like uh, race for the cure. Uh, the uh, there was an identity prior to the pink ribbon that I I did that was a uh, was like a face um, runner face dual illustration. But anyways, worked on that and I worked on um, uh, the logo for Scattergories. Um, oh really? Yeah, That's super cool. <laughs> and and all that was like hand drawn stuff, and it was uh, amber lith and ruby lith, which were uh, these mediums that you would uh, <laughs> cut with an exacto knife. Um, they were for use on stat cameras. And uh, it was a, a medium that came in amber and uh, red version, or it came in, mm -hmm. in uh, sorry, orange version or ruby lift, which was a uh, red version. And what it was was a clear piece of mylar that had a, almost like a very thin coating of red or orange gel this and you can see through this gel and mm -hmm. you would put it on top of say like a sketch you did of a logo and then you would trace it with an exacto blade and then you peel away all of the excess of this gel crap and it would leave you with a sharp edged version of your logo so you took your it was an oh, inking wow. it was a form of inking but that was done with uh tracing paper <laughs> you know it was a tracing paper really essentially cool. and then you you would put that on the stat camera take a photo of it and it would turn black gotcha so it was just a a, a way for you uh, it was one of the tools in uh, uh like <laughs> uh package development and everything and back at, at that time this was uh uh i guess it was, was 94 1994 and uh I was working my tail off and uh, there were no there was one computer in the office um, we had uh, there was probably like 10 designers um, and uh, only one person was a kind of a production artist for the whole office and you would do a, a sketch of a logo and then she would chase it in illustrator and then you would get a, draw, a printout back uh, at the time, this was pre-postscript visualization, and so mm -hmm. what you saw on the screen was not what would come out on the printout. And so they would print it, and then I would draw on top of the printout and say, "Clean up this bezier," and then send it back. And then, it was amazingly like manual. Um, and they're like, "So what do you know about the computer?" And I was like, "Nothing." Like we had no computer classes in school, you know. Yeah. Um, and was working a hundred plus hours a week and um i was asked to work more i also um a like <laughs> this part might need to get um scrap from uh, um this i'm not sure but it but it was a good it was a, an important lesson so maybe maybe everybody can learn from it um but uh the studio um one day, one day, uh, we had a freelancer in the office and, 
I decided, hey, you can take my, my desk, uh, and I will use one of the partner's desks, um, because I work here, you know, um, yeah. gave up my desk and was cleaning up his desk. And I found, uh, a blue line, which is a, uh, press sample. Um, like when you take something go to print with something, you get a, a proof, a blue line of it. And it was a blue line that looked just like a piece that was in my student portfolio. And it was, oh, wow. and it, it was a, a letterhead I had designed for some, whatever, uh, Redwood Conservation Society, I believe. Um, mm-hmm. and, and it had been turned into a promo uh, for Simpson Evergreen promotion, uh, Evergreen paper. And they asked me to work more right after I had discovered this, like, highly <laughs> inspired version of um, something that, I, that had been hidden from me. Um, yeah. no less, you know, which was, uh, I knew it had been hidden and there was a request for me to work more. And I was like, I work a hundred hours a week. I, I, you know, I'm, I, I was driving an hour every day. Um, yeah, that's and, a lot. That's, you're literally working two weeks every week. Yeah. And it was just, it was working. my first job, you know, I just yeah. wasn't ready to, uh, and in all fairness to, to, um, that studio, um, I wasn't ready. I was mm-hmm. young. I was had more talent than sense, and uh, cool that I could, uh, you know, draw better than in, a lot of people in my class. But I didn't quite understand. Uh, I didn't have the discipline yet, mm-hmm. and I didn't understand what it took to have a sustained career. But hold on, I have a question there. The discipline for what? Because I don't know that, and and maybe I'm in that position where I don't have the the professional acumen yet, but to work 100 plus hours a week, to have someone, as you said, highly inspired, replicate something you've done uh, in your your student portfolio, not be recognized for it, not be paid for it, and they ask you to do more. I don't know. In my opinion, again, I'm 27. You're much older. You've got way more work experience. To me, I would probably have said no too. That's true. I mean, I don't. I don't think. Uh, you know, I, at, at the time, the the system was much more set up about uh, master and apprentice. Um, gotcha. it, it, it was, and so the the fact that I even got a foot in the door was like exceptional. They wouldn't even <laughs> hire. Uh, you know, a, a student, you know, they, they like, no way they would, they would hire somebody with 10 years of experience. They were that in <laughs> demand. Um, and so it was seen as a privilege that I had access to, um, the experience and, um, the, the space, frankly. And, and I, this is a little bit of a sidebar, but I think it's important in context for younger designers um, is that at the time you took a job based on the library that the, the office had because there wasn't the internet. And so the access to a book like grid systems and graphic design yeah. was you had to get a job at Pentagram because they were the only people that had been to Switzerland and bought the book. Oh, so it wasn't even a matter of having it available to you every day. It was the fact that you might not have that book in the state, let alone the city or office. Gotcha. That's that's some crazy shit. You that I say it's crazy shit because now anyone can order that book off of Amazon, kind of thing. But 
that it it wasn't even a known. Yeah, but that's probably even better though, right? Because you, you, it sounds like you sort of surround yourselves around people who, well, hopefully, people who are all hungry and seeking knowledge. Versus now, knowledge is uh, a commodity almost, right? Like anyone can jump on the internet and just figure out, figure out the sentence that they need to prove you wrong and then go about it. Exactly, which is why there's such a proliferation of spouting of. Uh, in quotes, you can't see the air quotes I'm making, yeah. of knowledge yeah. that uh, is so prevalent on the, the internet these days is because uh, it's really easy to support things with all sorts of facts of published things, yeah. but published by who, vetted by what experience, and yeah. you know, one yeah. size, fits, size fits all recommendations are like, I think one of the downfalls of this current mode of our industry is uh, sure just way too much advice and not enough understanding of the multitudes of careers that can happen within one industry you know yeah there's also a lot of not listening correct um someone someone once said to me the phrase uh and it wasn't so much about listening it was like if you ever get into a like there there's two types of conversations you can get into it's a type of conversation where uh you listen you hear and then you respond or you wait until you can respond. And the idea there was that if you and I are having a discussion, let's say you and I were in an argument, uh, you can either hear my side of it, right? Take it in, digest it, understand it, and come up with a response. Or you can just wait till I'm done talking and say what you were going to say anyways. Um, and I th- feel like a lot of the latter happens now. Yeah. Um, I think part of that, though, too, is because the internet is faceless, right? It's it, yeah. like you, you and I have had enough Skype conversations uh, that – you know, we sit down and we listen. And, and if, if I were upset, if you were upset, we would stop and talk. But had we never met in person, had we never had Skype conversations, we were just, uh, you know, talking to each other on Twitter, we it would probably take it with a lot less value. Right. Now, that's that's very true. That's very true. But yeah, it was a, a very different time making a decision based on like kind of uh, the books that they had in their library. Yeah. That was like well, that's, that's a, a professional development, too. Right. It was. How, how far are they going to get me? Right, right, uh, because uh, it was both the the mentorship that they could offer as well as yep. the kind of it, well, in general, it was access to knowledge um, of all sorts from that they they helped provide. Um, so, I don't know. It was a good entryway into um, mm-hmm. the business, but it also was a painful one because I um, I I made decisions probably in retrospect um, that were driven by um money and not by uh what felt like the right fit Um, sure and that's hard though when you're a kid right oh i I have no context you know so and i was just trying to survive you know i mean honestly even that that job was barely sustainable for me at the time because uh well i was gonna ask if you're okay with sharing given it was also so long ago uh, well, you know, long ago in, in terms of like salaries and that kind of stuff, how much were they paying you then? Like what would, rather, let me rephrase that. What was a reasonable wage for a college graduate to make in design? I think it time? was, I think it was $18,000. Holy shit. Well, I say holy shit t- to me today, right? Like that's not a lot of money today. Back then you could have probably done just fine. I remember, I, I remember even as much as maybe like, Five years into my career, I thought that if I ever made $40,000, I would be set, <laughs> which is hilarious. I've had the same thoughts in my career. As I was just like, that's going to be in. amazing someday, yeah. you know. 
Uh, I will be a baller. Was was any of that influenced by your upbringing? And and I bring that up because it, you grew up in a town that was three thousand or less. Um, well, your dad was an engineer, so I'm under the assumption that was a decent paying job. And your mom worked at a university. But growing up in Texas, right? Like versus growing up in New York City, where everything is a premium. Um, you know, expectations are a little bit different. The, yeah. Um, my. Uh, I, I had a really uh, modest upbringing, though um, my grandparents were um, cotton farmers and mechanics, and my dad, oh, okay. my dad was the only one of that his generation that went to college, um, and uh, my um, my dad actually got a scholarship for music, and because of the space race and everything, uh, he decided to. Uh, take a more secure uh, job as an engineer um, and raise a family. And mm -hmm. uh, we, I have a, a sister. Um, and after we moved to um, this little town, um, maybe like four years after, uh, my parents ended up getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. um, and my dad remarried and he remarried a woman that had four children. Um, so all of a sudden, this very meager... became a big family. Yes, and this very uh, kind of reasonable salary for a family of four got translated into, a, I think, a family of ten. Um, oh, my gosh. And I was, you know, sharing a room, and we had very limited resources. And so uh, my my parents actually refused to pay for my school schooling because I chose to study art. Um, they, uh, well, my mother... Um, she did support my art career and my father didn't. Um, but my father had a little bit more income than my mom. So anyways, sure. it was a struggle for me to, um, go to art school and it was a, frankly, an act of defiance, um, in a way against my, my parents. And they thought that, uh, I had, uh, thrown my future into the trash can so yeah. <laughs> um, well if it makes you feel better you live every day as a rebel now well exactly exactly yeah. <laughs> right um but my, and my mom conversely was like do what you love and the mo money will follow and um which i it's still a lesson that i try to um stick to today um mm -hmm. I feel like anytime I uh, start chasing income alone, that it uh, changes the um, yeah. Kind of my, it's got to be. It's it still has to be hard, and I say and I and I say this not ever being in your position. And it sounds like you you've now successfully ran two businesses. Um, there are I imagine there's times where you just have to pay the bills or you know have to meet payroll for your employees and stuff. So how is it how is it that from from a person who is, I I mean. It sounds like you've ran more than two businesses because I know that you've done freelance as well. But you've run two enterprises with other individuals. Um, how did how did you manage to sort of stay true to the vision, the mission, et cetera, of what you wanted, but also realizing that you don't want to chase the money? Well, I don't know. You know, uh, frankly, I'm still like figuring that out, and I keep on. It's, you know, if it was a uh... If I was a DJ, it's like the like these slider knobs that I'm messing with all the time in my career and trying to figure out like what uh, how how much is led by aesthetics, how much is led by financial gain, um, what is the right uh, what are the right opportunities for growth? Because I've also seen people who um, you know 
in, 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 in my career, uh, I'll give a brief overview of like kind of how I got to today in terms of uh, uh, careers and then I'll get back to, um, but I had that job uh, that was all hand skills and, uh, but it was really hard work, very much a master apprentice kind of mentality. Um, mm-hmm. I quit uh, and I started painting and then had like a three year career as a fine artist where I just did a painting every day and I managed to eke out a living for three years selling paintings. Um, and then people started, I got written up in newspapers and, uh, the, like the Dallas, um, papers and Fort Worth papers. And, uh, they, uh, all of a sudden I was asked to do paintings that match people's couches and I would make a logo bigger, but I would not make a painting that matched someone's couch. So I, I mean, when you say match the couch, you mean in size? Uh, yeah. Like make it red and make it 10 foot wide. And it, that's it, huge. Wow. Yeah. And, and it was just weird because all of a sudden you realize that, uh, there's a certain point in, in the fine art world where it turns into less about self-expression and more about being an interior designer for wealthy folks. And, and, Okay. It's in a way, you know, cause uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. it was like novel to have like a young hotshot artist, you know, do a painting yep. that met. And anyways, it, and at that same very, that same time I met, uh, I met my wife, um, who's now my wife. Um, and her, uh, while I was a fine artist and flaky and everything. And, uh, at the time, uh, her, her, her dad designed the DFW airport. Um, oh, wow. And, that's really neat. Yeah. And her, her mom was an interior designer. They went to uh, Pratt. Um, and uh, her parents saw my portfolio and they're, you know, they're like, who is the sketchy fine artist guy that my daughter's hanging out with? <laughs> and they saw my portfolio and her mom was like, why don't you do this anymore? I was like, well, I had this bad experience where some of my student work was taken. And if I ever did it, I'd want to do it for myself. And, um, at the time, uh, uh, Mac, Mac, uh, Macintosh clones were out. There was uh, power computing and, mm-hmm. uh, Mac, uh, Mac hard drive was like five grand. Um, oh, wow. my, my, and so they're really expensive and she was like, put together it's cost for what it would take to start your own, um, business. Your wife's mom. Yeah. And I was super naive. Um, I was, she's, I don't know, in my mid twenties and, uh, put together costs for this thing. And it ended up being 10 grand. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the heart, the, the, it was, a, it was, I know it was a power PC, um, 8,500, a 150 megahertz computer. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think it had uh, 256 megs of RAM. It was something ridiculous, but yeah. Uh, um, and uh, with the printer and uh, other things, it added up to 10 grand. It was really, really expensive, especially at that time. Um, mm-hmm. But it's ridiculously naive cost of starting a business. Um, yeah. I, and, and it wasn't as much about that as like, I guess I needed to learn this tool and I could, sure. I didn't have access to this tool and it was blocking me from a career in graphic design. Yep. So I had a fine art career where I was basically doing angry paintings about my inability to do graphic design, but <laughs> that's, that's a different, um, story. It was like the, the fuel of my angst was, yeah. um, an inability to kind of make money off of creative in a way. Um, but 
So she loaned me the money to buy a computer. I did. How, how long were you and your wife at the time dating? Maybe like not very long, a year. So it was a they, really bold they, move. Yeah, it, they had some faith in you. In way. And um, her, uh, her, her, her mom, mom's like uh, financial advisor was like, do not do this. Like, do not give this hippie kid, you know, 10 grand. This is a bad move. Um, maybe it was. Who knows? I mean, I, uh, from an outsider's perspective, I certainly would have advised her the same in retrospect. Yeah, sure. um, but she she did loan it to me. And um, at the time, I, I just threw myself at it. I worked at a Kinko's um, during the day. And uh, I was painting and uh i had a lot of friends um my the school that i attended was a really strong music school mm-hmm. and so a lot of my friends were uh musicians and uh, early on they were did using you do, did you do poster design for all your friends bands i definitely did that and some okay. rave <laughs> rave flyers and stuff like that and uh, i knew people who did uh had really indie recording studios because that was the first time people could do that. And yep. they, they would run a recording studio off a Mac Quadra, which was an amazing, like, little bitty computer. Yeah, that's but, pretty dope. But a bass player in a, a band that I knew called uh, Brutal Juice that was on this, uh, uh, on Interscope Records, and he taught me how to use my computer. And um, I think... Three months after I started using it, um, a friend of mine who uh, worked at a multimedia company, that, 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 and I'm using that word very deliberately because at the time yeah. people had CD-ROM corporations that, you know, where they would make like little CDs with uh, interactive applications on them, director, macromedia director apps on them, and wanted, uh, he was, he touched base and was like, what do you know about Illustrator? And I was like, not much, but I'm pretty good at it. And I download <laughs> Just like every oblivious. Exactly. Of- exactly. And so that night, uh, this was on a 33.6 modem. Um, I, I got on uh, Alta Vista search engine. And this is all like dating me so bad, but fuck it. I'm already there. Um <laughs> Uh, um, and found, uh, I looked up illustrator and found a copy on an FTP site, um, and downloaded it that night and started. So you actually had never used it before? No, never used it. Never (laughs) used it. And I was like, yeah, I'm pretty good at it. Downloaded it that night, went in the next day. And of course, um, probably within an hour, the, the jig was up that I had never used it before. So, um. Thankfully, the art director there, um, you know, was like, cool, but I can tell you that you're talented and here's how you use it. And so I got on the job training and all of a sudden I was, uh, you know, a multimedia designer. Well, it's good, though, too, because it sounds like they they acknowledged your ability or potential and they were like, we're not going to let the tool get in the way of this kid's skills. Right. Uh, uh, Yeah, exactly. And, And it was a really... It was a, at the time, uh, this was 1997, um, that I got. I was in third grade. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was trying to start a career. It it was very rocky. Um, but, uh, 
this is pre-dot-com boom, and there really was a sense early in the, end, uh, the, the introduction of computers. It was super rebellious. I mean, we were like, everybody had like blue hair, and we thought we were from the future, and like, yeah. you know, anime, and like, uh, you know, Apex Twin, and it was, you know, we were going to overthrow culture you know we were a new generation and none of you fucking get it you know um and uh i i was i very much was like into that culture and bought into it well then i kind of realized that there just wasn't uh within the multimedia space there wasn't a, a respect for like my heroes which is like classic design i love uh, Glazier and Seymour Quast and all, you know, the masters, Llewellyn and, you know, Acher and all those, Brockman. But, uh, so I ended up moving sideways to, uh, I started freelancing at this place, um, at night, uh, working on, uh, working at this other design studio and I helped launch NeimanMarcus.com. Um, oh wow, that's really neat. The first website, and then shortly, uh, I ended up getting uh, hired by that firm, um, and I, I was their seventh employee and a junior designer. The second, uh, there was only me and one of the principals were designers there, and we did NeimanMarcus.com, and then we got HermanMiller.com. And so, what what year what year was this in? Uh, this was 98, a year about, a, I was at that multimedia place for about a year. And then okay. all of a sudden this opportunity came up to work on, uh, Neiman Marcus and everyone was like, sure. And all of a sudden I was, for the first time ever, I was, uh, coding. I, there was, uh, Photoshop comps that I would, yep. uh, match, uh, tables based layout to, and I would basically, so, I was, I was going to ask what those designs look like because the internet was limited in what you could do with it in 98. Um, they, they actually are super relevant even today and actually could be accomplished, um, really easily today, but they were circular. Um, the, 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 Neiman Marcus catalog is pretty famous um, yeah. print piece where, you know, they sell like a submarine every year or something outlandish, like a million dollar, whatever. And it happened to be just down the street from where my office was in Dallas um, there. And so uh, I had ease of access to them and uh <laughs> The studio that I worked at, that second studio, um, was famous for being kind of technology pioneers because gotcha. they shortcut. Uh, this is hilarious. Again, dating myself, but interesting context for how much the industry's changed. Back, you know, when I was in school, one of the things that I learned how to do was how to uh, count type, which isn't, a, and it was the least favorite part of. Um, what does that mean? Right, I know. Um, I don't totally remember how to do it, but it was uh, every type typesetting was all done with uh, photo compositors or mm-hmm. metal, like a linotype machine. Mm-hmm. Um, so you would actually send it out to get your typeset. So you would you would do your drawing of your logo, you would take your photo, and then the body copy you would have written, um, a copywriter or whatever to write it, and then you would count the letters and spaces, and you would uh, figure out the width of your uh, your column, and you would figure out 
your type size, and then you do some math, a formula, to figure out how many words on average would fit per line. <laughs> yes. And then you would, terrible. It, it was so terrible because I was like, I, I wasn't good at math, or w- rather I had a uh, mental block against math. I did not know that how important it was going to be as a designer. Anyway, yeah. uh, and um, it was just super complex. And then you would do this math and maybe when you got your thing back from the uh, typesetting place, like uh, the last word in the line would rag and you would have like a widow and you'd be like, damn it, I did the math wrong. And so it it was a really complex and manual and uh, yeah. laborious pr- process. Um, and the company that I worked at uh, made their mark by uh, doing that on the computer. And oh, they, wow. they started type typesetting just an illustrator, but they had a, a knack for doing that. And they started selling that to clients for really cheap. Gotcha. And so okay. they could discount sense. like what a traditional design studio was doing by yeah. half because, because at the time it was like 20 grand to get a block of a paragraph of copy set was like 10, 20 grand. Um, and I can imagine in that scenario, you have, since you're paying someone else, you have to mark it up so much higher to still make your margins. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So a project would go from, you know, 40 grand to 20 grand, this, this new little indie studio. And we were all like yeah. rebels using computers, you know? Um, and, uh, we actually, uh, because of, uh, the work that we did for Herman Miller, uh, we also launched Herman Miller's first five websites. Um, mm-hmm. And, uh, we helped Macromedia launch, uh, we were on the, the beta testing program for, uh, Future Splash, which was before Flash. Okay. <laughs> it was before <laughs> a Director and Flash. There was a thing called Future Splash. Um, and we did a drawing that was on the cover of, I think it was ID Magazine or How. Anyways, but it, it was a flash drawing that you could uh, zoom into endlessly, and there was words inside of the drawing. Oh, and that, that's cool. That, but at the time, that was like amazing that that yeah. you could do that, and that that would be could be on a website, and it could be a magazine cover. Like people were like, "How did you?" You know, yeah, uh, yeah. we were magic people, um, <laughs> and uh, and that's why we would get all these like really big. Uh, accounts like uh, Herman Miller and stuff is because we were design innovators. Like we were the yeah. the true, you know, crazies. And um, so I started seventh employee at this place, and uh, we quickly grew because we got that Herman Miller account, and we also picked up uh, ID Software. Um, I did the identities for uh, uh, Quake three and uh, return to castle wolfenstein and uh, the packaging design for all of these I've video games played all those games that you've you have a hand in this is <laughs> awesome no way well um id software was uh nearby in dallas they're in irving texas and okay. so uh we were agency of record for them and so probably three months after i bought my computer i got the this was the $10,000 computer. Yeah, I got this $10,000 computer, taught myself how to use it, and maybe a month later started working at this uh, um, other agency, and I don't know, maybe 
Within a year, uh, I had done the logo for Quake 3, and I actually, I wish I had it now, I don't, but I actually got an email from Steve Jobs, because back in the day... Wait, um, you don't have that email anymore? Yeah, imagine that, right? That is um, so cool. Um, but... Uh, there was a Mac world where they were trying to highlight uh, the 3D capabilities of the Mac. And so <laughs> I had to do a custom version of the Quake 3 logo that was in blue that matched the OS X release. Because I think that's what it was. It was the year OS X came out. Yep. Um, and uh, so uh, it got included into a big uh, Mac world uh, or whatever, one of their big releases. So it was... Anyways, all of a sudden, within a year, I was getting, you know, emailed by one of the godfathers of um, our whole industry. And being so young, I had no clue that that would never happen to me again. You know, yeah, but anyways. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, well, you know, that's hard, right? Because it's like, well, I'm only getting started. I'm going to have even better stuff in the future. Totally. And I, I, I just, uh, there wasn't the, at the time, um, Apple was struggling, right? This is post, um, okay. you know, the, yeah, yeah. the, com the power computing thing, Steve Jobs had just come back and it was kind yeah. of like, I don't know, you know, is this really a good thing? Is this industry, you know, is this, are you really going to save the company? Um, yeah. and that's uh, honestly, that's why stuff like Quake was, um, such an integral, important part of, uh, you know, that, that time. So anyways, uh, we grew from a, a company of seven to a company of 50. Um, and then that's a lot. Yeah. And then, uh, eventually that grew to probably like a hundred people. And I was part of this journey and I, uh, I, I grew from a uh, junior designer to an art director to a creative director, and then eventually a partner in the company over the course How of... How long were you there? Eight years. Oh, wow. Okay, so this was home for a while. It was. Um, it was. And it was a really good learning experience. I had a lot of influence because of uh, the very small design team that was there and being one of the cornerstones of it. Um, I did a. I also had the good fortune while I was working there. I I did a catalog for this tiny little company out of New Mexico called Nambe, and it was a tabletop uh, tableware manufacturer that made metal and crystal uh, vases and bowls. Um, okay. And worked with lots of industrial designers, and I did their first print piece. Uh, this would, this also dates me, but this was at a time when the idea of branding was new, um, it, which is funny to say it was an accessible concept at a very high level again, like the American airlines or something yep. like that. Um, but, that, but it wasn't something that, uh, a Neiman Marcus necessarily understood yet, sure. which is weird to say. It's weird to say, but, uh, yeah, I think, I think, I think uh, you know, I don't know at that time, but I can imagine now given the pro prolifer pro bleh, proliferation of the internet and the fact that like you've got a logo in so many spots brand like the value of branding from a, a, a just strictly a visual representation and a like um, visual comprehension um, is probably much more valuable now than it was before just because you I, again I don't know so please tell me if I'm wrong I feel like Nimi Marcus probably had a lot more control over where their brand was and when it was wherever so this concept of branding was not as important because it was only in their catalogs or in the ads that they bought it wasn't 
It wasn't on a celebrity's, you know, back when they were walking out of their affairs house or whatever, right? Some obscure shit they have no control over. Exactly. And, and it was almost like uh, branding sometimes in a case of a, like a Neiman Marcus was informed by their conservatism of like, we use Futura in the script logo, period. Yeah. It wasn't yeah. really like as considered. And the idea that uh, a font and a color could make a brand was a yep. new thing. And, you know, um, people hadn't really... It was still, you know, uh, if you think about the the time period, you know, in uh, 95 or something like that, graphic design, like the the Nike swoosh is, uh, what, 20 years old? Yep. Not very old. And they got it through a contest. Right. And it, so yeah. it's not very old. And the idea of, like, what it meant to have, like, a color associated with that and mm -hmm. a, a logo was a, a new thing. And so we were kind of experimenting, like – Early on in my career, that was like one of my accidental fortes. I did this catalog for a company and it had like 10 different pastel colors that I had picked out and had all these uh, color fields, these shapes, like uh, squares and photography that were the balance. They were kind of counterbalanced. Um, and my employees, my employers kept on saying, well, that's a nice Swiss grid. I'd never heard of that t t term before. Um, and so uh, I started researching it and, you know, the internet is very, very young. So search engines, there wasn't a Google, um, at, you know, at least it wasn't popular. It was, we were still using stuff like Netscape um, and, <laughs> you know, uh, Netscape and IE. Um, and uh, I, Googled it and I found, uh, I didn't Google it, but anyways, I searched it, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is so weird. Yeah. I can't even use that verb. It doesn't, it doesn't fit, but I, but I was searching for it and found uh, out that there was a thing called Swiss grids and that people like Joseph Mueller Brockman had pioneered this way to deal with uh, columns of type and multiple languages. And it was one of the first times that I had a sense that um, of a connection to the history of graphic design and that there was things that I had like a natural kind of inclination towards or curiosity or whatever. Uh, I was searching for systems that I hadn't been educated about. There wasn't nobody had taught me about that stuff. And I started discovering that, oh my gosh, there's the, the stuff that I'm trying to emulate, whatever there's, there was a DNA in um, print pieces that I wanted to capture that I didn't know was called um, grid systems. And it was about uh, the way that things were aligned and like information hierarchies and stuff. Yep. Um, and I didn't have any language for it. And I realized that I was kind of accidentally exploring the same stuff and things that others had already explored mm -hmm. solved and maybe discarded, you know, where you're, you're yeah. like, Oh crap. I really need to, there's a lot yeah. for me to learn. And, um, but it's still pretty good that you've come to that. Like, uh, it reminds me there's an episode of mad men. I don't know if you ever watched it where Peter it's in, I think it's in the first season, Peter Campbell comes to Don Draper and he's like, you know, he's like, I am smart. He's like, I came to the concept of direct mail on my own. He's like, it had already existed. I didn't know it, but I still came to that concept on my own. And he, he was trying to prove that that's like why he's smart. But, 
but it sounds like that same thing sort of happened to you where you were exploring and then coming to this interesting endpoint of what ended up being a Swiss grid or just typographic hierarchy and just like a systems and stuff on your own without ever having that knowledge or which is still pretty dope, right? Like you're having this same like aha moment, just maybe like 50 years too late. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I really felt like I was inventing something and then to discover that I wasn't. And, um, and what it was, was like a, a norm, the normal designer problem of like, what are the rules, the justification for like why I'm putting something where I am when you're talking about arbitrary placement of things. And so, uh, it whatever i had this natural seeking out of um structures and uh it really helped me a lot and i had taken um there was one history of graphic design course on my way out of school um that left a big impact on me too but it only gave me like a kind of a cursory level of like Mm -hmm. understanding of you know it's stuff more like constructivism and you know whatever the gutenberg bible it was definitely more basic but it helped me understand that um one of the things i say often is like to get where we're going you have to know where we've been and and i think that there is like uh something that often we in creative industries uh forget is that there is uh and it's essential that that uh I mean, cool that we're p- trying to pioneer, but it's essential that our ideas are attached to a central trunk of development. Yeah. Great that it forks endlessly, but you're not trying to make a whole new tree because I mean, it needs some context and a lineage. Yeah. And then it, it, I feel like it has like a, a greater potential for longevity and meaning and continuity and then it's progress you know and you're not you know i think sometimes like uh sure the creative act is often a destruction destructive one but does it have to be like senselessly destructive you know sure yeah do you think a lot of uh younger designers have that um what's the word i want to use I'll say ignorance for the lack of a better term. That that's probably not the best word to use. Um, I guess lack of, lack of knowledge is better. Do you still think that there are things that younger designers have a lack of knowledge on that had they did a little bit of research on the history of design, they may have uh, fulfilled that knowledge then? Yeah, you you, know, you were in a point where there was no Google, right? So it was, it was substantially harder to gain that knowledge. But so, do you think that still happens? Uh, I I do, but I think it's uh, you know there's a all of this like massive amounts of knowledge that um, younger designers have that I didn't have. And there's also democratization of tools. So honestly, there's a lot of uh, heads up and advantages, uh, um, mm-hmm. but there's also sometimes like a uh, naivety to like the, the connection to, uh, or cool. If you're going to destroy things, understanding what the, the ramifications of that destruction might be, for your longevity. I think sometimes, yeah. sometimes we have like some slightly, um, uh, there's some, there's some tendencies that might be a little bit destructive for the long term uh, <laughs> benefit of the industry. Like they're slightly parasitic for the moment. They, and, yeah. and maybe that's how things always happen. Uh, I mean, this, this, the cycle of change is, uh, certainly, uh, 
escalated greatly in in the course of my career and gone from a 10-year cycle to a five-year to a three-year. Now it's like it was yearly and now I'm like, is it six months? Is it three months? I mean, it really feels like that it's gotten really quick. And I, I think it gives us all, keeps us all kind of spinning. What are you building towards when you're constantly kind of being spun on your access? Like it's hard to, to have like a, a, a true sense of North. Like what's your direction? Yeah. And so. do you, when you say it's constantly changing, you're talking about like things like design trends or something past that. Um, past that, I like what the, you know, what it is to be a designer, you know, how much of that is idea driven versus like, uh, production or process driven because, uh, process, process used to be like my thing. I had roots in silk screening and, mm -hmm. uh, I liked the craft part of the, the, the process, but now, um, and there's validity to all these different forms of, of what design is as well. I mean, uh, design as advertising, design as interactive design, design as letterpress design. I mean, it's funny. There's, and, but, but, but I think sometimes like, uh, there's just a, I guess just, again, a lack of understanding of the context, like, um, letterpress and engraving as an example were the only way that you could do things for a while and they were inefficient yeah. and overly costly and they made for bad businesses and that's why we <laughs> progressed beyond those models and now they're kind of like fetishized and yeah. uh, uh, yes people there's a premium but it's also a really difficult business I mean yeah. you know because it's and it's romantic as hell. I mean, you can make the most beautiful Instagram photos of like, you know, all that stuff. But, um, yeah. but, but I don't know. Um, and, and it's fun and it's, uh, valid in its own way as an exercise, but I don't know if it's like, uh, uh, cultural shifts. And I'm kind of like, I've always kind of been fascinated by, uh, uh, you know, the zeitgeist and like what, what is our role as creators in influencing the future and like opening people's idea, minds up and hearts up to new yeah. ideas and challenging people. I mean, cause we could make dumb things that don't make people think, or we can make things that kind of push things and challenge. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's totally fair. You know, it's interesting. Cause I wonder, and I might I might be taking that uh, that idea of creating things to you know uh, empower change, whether it's societal change or there's change in a person, change in a purchasing behavior, et cetera. Um, and I realize what I'm about to say could light a fire. I'm going to say it anyways. You know, I I I'm curious right now as to how much responsibilities designers put on themselves to do these things. Um, when in reality that may not, it may be a fabricated responsibility. So uh, I'll, I'll, I'll try to, uh, clarify that for you and the listeners via an example, let's say, you know, I don't know, given current day, you're building an e-commerce website and you're working on a, on a purchase flow, right? So from the moment that uh, a person browses and selects a product to the moment in which they purchase and actually that, that transaction goes through, um, Sometimes you do need just like a good aesthetic and a, and a sensible one that to make sure people don't drop off at any point, uh, to make sure it's as short as possible. It's as easy to use as possible. Uh, but then sometimes you might, uh, 
I've seen it in some instances, and this doesn't make anyone a good or bad designer, but they tend to harp on like really what, what the term now air quotes is, um, micro interactions, um, or like really small, like animations and shit. And sometimes those things matter. Uh, if it's brand related, right. So think about like the Slack logo and how that animates when you, when you load up Slack for the first time that when you fire it up for the first time that day, like those kind of things matter. Cause that just goes with this personality, but like the speed in which the checkbox, uh, like goes from opacity one to zero, my, like, like, I wonder how much of it is if it, I, hopefully that makes sense. I'm also terrible at explaining shit. I'm so bad at it, but I, but I, I wonder how much of that is, um, uh, sort of self created, right. This responsibility to sort of recreate this entire wheel versus like understanding what the, what the actual responsibility of, of the certain task or project or, uh, the role in which design plays in that project or that business or that task, et cetera. That does, I don't, and I'm not trying to, uh, minimize design. I think design's a very power, like everything in my, everything that we touch and that we interact with has been designed, designed po- good or bad. Right. Um, but to sometimes design is just a means to an end. And then sometimes design is the entirety of the product. And I, I feel like what, what happens now, um, in a good and bad sense, I think at the very least it creates a discussion, which is better than not, is that a, a lot of folks in the design industry think the intention of said product is design where sometimes it is sort of just the, the, the vehicle in which something else happens. Yep. Agreed. Um, And I think that part of that is, uh, it's twofold. I mean, I think that there's a preciousness that sometimes uh, designers have towards the, the, the industry and the trying to like elevate it into something that's more special. And yeah, I, I, I feel like all industries do that. There has to be constructions that workers out there who think that construction is the only thing that can change the world. Right. Same thing with dentists and finance people and whatever. Exactly. No, you're very, you're, you're very right. And I also think that, you know, it's like, uh, Jennifer Daniel, um, she spoke at, you know, Brooklyn 1.0 and she, uh, was saying, wait, which, which person was that? Because I was there, I don't I don't remember the name. New York Times graphics editor. Um, I'm, I I was not there for that one. I had to come a little bit later because I had to finish up stuff at work. Why? Well, I, I felt so bad I missed that one. Contrarian to the 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 concept of the conference was like what we make matters, and that designers uh, you know had a responsibility to the things that we create and introduce to the world and. She was kind of calling bullshit on that and going, that's just designers trying to justify uh, their careers, the toxicity of their careers, essentially. And um, and I do think that that's part of it. And I, I honestly, I think right now I'm part, part of my career that I'm fascinated in is like, how do you create systems that foster true creativity? I think right now that the systems are pretty toxic and that they uh, they burn out people and use them up and they're not really holistic and they don't feed creative spirits. Um, (laughs) and, uh, I think that, uh, anyways, but uh, getting off, getting off topic, but yeah, I do think, I do think that we get lost in, uh, 
it's it, the detail you know the details are the design yes but yeah. they also aren't everything and i think i, I um as i've uh you know matured in the industry design has gotten less and less precious to me i actually like i still very much care about visual aesthetics and mm -hmm. um uh but but not to the point like i also i also understand business models now understand communication goals <laughs> that changes uh, a lot of yeah things. it does and i understand yeah. technical um implications and so like i can't i no longer i i used to think that the design and the idea were everything and everything just had to like crumble to this blueprint that i had in my head you like mm -hmm. force it to comply but now i understand that it's the negotiation of all these parts these levers mm -hmm. that you manipulate to create a balance of uh within uh, you know uh to find the possibilities within constraints makes sense no that that makes you know it i feel like it takes someone of of your level of experience and skill to come to that like uh in my opinion a 30 year old designer is not going to come to that conclusion they might re like. It, I, and, I wouldn't either. I, w I, w I was like, I would have been all bent out of shape if somebody like changed a color back in the day, you know. Yeah. And now I'm just like, I, you know, uh, uh, it's just I, re I realize <laughs> yeah. that it's not personal. Someone's critique of a visual design that I do isn't me. It's a thing yeah. I made. And as much as my heart and soul is in it. Yeah, you know that's that's hard because it it happens for me in development too, where like um, I've I've gotten better at throwing at being very fine with throwing stuff out. I've also tried to uh, negotiate with myself, being like, I can spend two hours making this thing really cool, but since no one else has ever seen it, it and the client hasn't seen it, this can get thrown out. So I can waste two hours, or I can prototype some something in thirty minutes and send it to them, and then you know figure out if that's actually worth its weight, um, and. I, you know, we, we had a, a Hmong, she was on the podcast uh, a couple seasons back, but when she was, and she's like a product designer now, but when she was in design school, I forget where she went, but every day they had to produce a new design of a thing every single day. And every, in every, every class that she went to every day, they'd have a critique. And the sole intention of that exercise was to get used to the idea that the designs you make, whether good or bad, are or rather the ideas that you turn into design things are simply ideas. They are not you. They're not an extension of you. And that if it sucks, that's it. It just sucks. Throw it out, do something else. Um, and I feel like that's, that's really hard to come by because, you know, uh, the example I'll use is um, I've worked on, I've worked with designers in the past where uh, on mobile screen, the font is 14 pixels on desktop screen. The font is 15 pixels. And I'm like, and I'm like, the extra six lines of codes are not worth the pixel change. And their response is, yes, it is. And I'm like, it's not. <laughs> I, I understand the intention that you're making, but a one pixel difference, prove, if you can prove to me in testing that a user notices that and that it's beneficial for the brand and, and what we're doing, let's do it. If it is strictly aesthetic, uh, but it, it requires extra code, which actually has implication, right? It, to some degree, without getting super technical, right? It increases file size, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, I was like, and I, I didn't say that. It, it ended up being one of those things where it wasn't worth discussing because it was so, it, in my end, again, it's not worth an hour long argument. So I'm just going to do it anyways. I don't care. It, it didn't have any over, it didn't make anything look worse. It looked fine. It was more like, I don't want to write six lines of code every time. 
Um, but getting back to the point, it's interesting because you see, I think, throughout the the career of a designer, and I'll use you as the example, is in the beginning you fight for everything, and then towards the end you realize like I'm going to live a really short life if I keep fighting for everything. I'm just gonna I'm gonna cash my chips in when I know that it's worth it. Totally, yeah. Um, it's funny. It made me think. I, I realized the other day, uh, earlier this year, I uh, was thinking about my personal evolution as a designer and sure. I, I, everybody has like a different voyage, but for me it was uh, technique. I'm looking at my notes now. It was uh, technique and then style and then heritage and then relationships. And that's both client and um, employee mm-hmm. relationships and then finance. And that's both personal and business finance. And now I'm at this uh, stage of, I'm really fascinated by purpose and meaning yeah. So when you what, what did you mean when you said heritage? Like your your heritage? Uh, you more history, history, like uh, the 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 connection. So yeah, at the beginning, technique for me was like literally how do I work Photoshop and these these tools, gotcha. the marker, yeah. even markers and things like that. But how do you do paste up and use the stat camera and Photoshop and Illustrator and and then after that it was uh, this like style and having a. The, the the gap the ira glass gap and yep. seeing a yep. visual style and understanding it and then trying to emulate it and yep. and then realizing that those styles had uh at least for me often that i used a, a style as a way to evoke a memory um <laughs> and so having an understanding of where that visual style might have it its roots like uh, enables you to perhaps introduce a sense of connection or nostalgia that might make something have deeper meaning. I mean, I'll give you an example. This is a goofy one, but when we were working on Quake 3, Mm -hmm. um, the logo for it, um, the whole office was like competing on this logo. And, um, you know, the the company was born by, um, you know, brothers who were essentially, you know, high school nerds who, um, a programmer and an artist, you know, and, um, drew lots of dragons and cool stuff. Right. (laughs) You know? Um, and I started thinking about it and was like, well, I was a heavy metal kid. You know, I was that punk rock kid in the back of the class. And I was like, well, what would, what would make, make me feel excited? And it was like, I should reference a, a heavy metal logo. And I was like Van Halen. So Van Halen was like an inspiration point for the Quake 3 logo because I had a sense that it would evoke a memory in their their head. Gotcha. And it also conceptually lent itself to the idea of a three-dimensional arena and it was an advanced 3D version of the game. And so, and it took, instead of just having three spikes on the Quake 2 logo, it, it took it and t- bent it into space and... Anyways, and in, they, they liked the logo so much that not only was it approved, but it became uh, the in the power-up in the game, a three-dimensional object in the game. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, that's, so... Hold on. That's really fucking cool, because your stuff lives forever in this game. <laughs> it, it, it is... I, I, honestly, it was... Um, one of the coolest experiences that I that I had was like winning that logo job because everybody wanted it so bad. Oh, I'm sure. And and I just figured out this angle, and it was 3D space. It, it was like take it and out of 2D space, and all and and um, 
and id software was like they were really cool and booming at the time um and every day at 5 p.m we would play local area land games with them um with uh daily builds of quake as it was coming out and they had skins uh, we all had custom skins that were our own faces and stuff and uh so it's so cool it was so rad and, and uh it was uh it was amazing that they just like took the logo and incorporated it into the game immediately they were like can we have the 3d model and it was like huh weird and all of a sudden it was in the game and um how old were you when that happened? When that when that achievement was reached? Probably twenty six, something like that. Oh, um, and I feel like that's probably like the perfect age because you were young. You're not entirely un- unexperienced, and that's like that. I mean, that's a huge win now, right? Even when you think about it, like that's a huge accomplishment to have. And then also to get that when you're twenty six, that just like it was really cool. You. It did. And weird sidebar on that is. Uh, I think like six or seven years later, a friend uh, came up to me and was like, oh, it's cool that your logo is in that book. And I was like, what? And um, it had gotten, it won an award, a Grafis award. I was trying to look. But anyways, it's in a Grafis branding book. And I had no idea. Again, um, sometimes the way that your career unfolds, you're like, I'm in Grafis? Like, (laughs) when did that happen? (laughs) You know, but... um, Super fun account, and it, so I mean, as you can tell, I had a, like a really that one eight year job. I worked on Herman Miller, Neiman Marcus, this like uh, tabletop company that was uh, emulating a design within reach model with featuring industrial designers um, <laughs> and uh, id software. And all, I was also at the time working on a lot of Northrop Grumman stuff and designing like flight patches and, uh, the global cyber warfare integration center. Like the, the, I did all the graphics for, uh, the building, the, the, the interior of the building that controls a lot of the, um, branches of the military. Um, and so your, your design literally touches millions of people. Yeah, yeah, I guess so. Or, it, I mean, if so, not not to give it any less credit, but like the Neiman Marcus stuff, it's probably not the same design. Uh, so the, while it was in use, it touched millions of people. Yeah. Um, and also, I, whatever, a weird connection, of like uh, past and present. When I was doing the Herman Miller site, um, we worked with, uh, we at the time, websites were full of games, you know, uh, like yeah. little Macromedia director games or Shockwave, I guess. Um, but we, one of the games that we, we did, we did this animated series and we hired Seymour Quas from Pushpin. Um, <clears throat> and he did... Uh, these, all these different uh, animations. And I did all the tween frames. And so I, you know, also got to work with like a graphic design legend. Um, yeah. And uh, it was a, but whatever, it was a, an interesting uh, thing to kind of be a, a keyframe animator for like a, a, a guy like that. And it was, uh, I guess that strange production role of like design. Yeah. So, anyway. so I have a question for you. Um, also trying to be mindful of time too, because we've had an, an incredible conversation. Um, 
you've had, I think I've now spoken to 40 or 50 people. So it's, it's not a, a, that by no means is that a full culmination of the entire design industry as it stands today, but it's still a lot of people. And it sounds like you've, you've definitely done some stuff that is pretty incredible. And we've both sort of established it's touched millions of people. Um, whether they're up at 3 a.m. playing Quake or physically in buildings, right, or shopping Neiman Marcus or Herman Miller, whatever. Um, do those things, like, do the size of those, do you acknowledge the size of those accomplishments now? Like, or are you just like, oh, yeah, that's cool. And I say that because I feel like while you're in it, it's very easy to not realize how large it is. To give you an example, at work, I've wor- I worked on the Southern Living website, and I was like, I was like, okay, cool, whatever. Uh, and it didn't it didn't really dawn on me how important that was to some people until I spoke to my girlfriend's mom who said that she's been a subscriber for 35 years. Right. Uh, yeah, uh, most of the time, uh, I'm more aware now, but early on in my career, um, you know, I, I didn't, when, when I worked on Herman Miller, I didn't know who Herman Miller was. Again, this was <laughs> early on and, um, you know, at that age, I couldn't afford the furniture, sure. and yeah. I knew the visuals of it. I knew, I knew, uh, you know, the potato chip chair that I would see in, uh, you know, a James Bond movie or something. Um, so I had like a visual familiarity to it, but I didn't understand the history. Um, and at the time, no one was selling all that stuff either, right? I mean, like that was uh, a luxury service. If you had an interior designer, they would buy. Uh, Herman Miller for you. Um, And actually, the whole purpose of the website that we launched was to make it accessible and make it where people could directly buy it for the first time ever. And um, anyways, but I didn't have a real understanding of uh, what those brands would mean for my long-term career. Um, You know, those were some of my very first projects. And uh, it ended up being that it firmly cast me is a luxury kind of, I had a, I had a luxury branding history and I also had uh, a lot of industrial design kind of, uh, exposure. You know, I learned about the Eames and Gerard and then I started working for that little company out of New Mexico called Nambe and we, hired industrial designers like uh, we followed the design within reach model and we hired industrial designers like Karen Rashid. Um, we were the first mm-hmm. people to ever hire him. The guy who designed the Garbo trash can that everybody has in their house, oh. that little plastic yeah, yeah, yeah. Umbra trash can. And we had, uh, designers like, uh, Eva Zeisel when she was 85, we brought her out of retirement. She was a Bauhaus designer who designed the town and country tableware collection. Um, yep. And, uh, worked, she, we worked with her until she was 103, I think. Uh, Holy shit. Yeah. She was the fact that someone's working that long. I mean, I, well, one, it probably doesn't feel like work for them, but that's amazing. Yeah. She was honestly the, the uh, she's the most inspirational designer I've met my whole life. And, uh, uh, what was her name again? Eva Zeisel. And, uh, she's a Hungarian designer who was actually, uh, 
part of the Bauhaus movement and designed uh, a lot of tableware that's really beautiful and lyrically organic forms. Uh, she's famous for these schmoo salt and pepper shakers that she did that were kind of part of that town and country collection. And um, when I met her, you know, she was 85 and her vision was uh, failing. And, uh, you know, I didn't know a lot about her. I was finding out as I was meeting her and we went to, uh, her studio in upstate New York and, um, you know, out comes this little lady, it's snowing. We go to this beautiful house in the woods and out comes this little lady and she was like, would you like to have tea? Well, being of young designer is not often that anyone ever asked me that, you know, a yeah. beer. Sure. But like a tea with a little, like a grandma kind of lady. And I was like, this is amazing. And so we sit down and go into this, uh, her, her little studio living room thing. And it's kind of beat up and rough around the edges, but I'm like looking at the photos on the wall and I was like, that's really beautiful. And there's this young woman in it. And it was like, is that you? And she was like, yeah, um, I think I was 20. Um, Alfred took it. And I was like, Alfred. And she was like, Stieglitz. <laughs> and I was like, oh my God. Yeah. And <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, you know, and she's handing me little pieces of pottery and stuff. And I, you know, I'm looking at this little vase and I'm flipping it, flipping it over. And it's like a, a MoMA sticker on it. And it's got a Metropolitan Museum of Art sticker on it. And just stacks of museum stickers on it. And, and she was like, yeah, that's the only piece that survived my imprisonment by Stalin. And I'm just like, and I'm just holding this like, Oh my God. Yeah. Cause you're, I mean, at that point it's not even about the person. That's a piece of history. Oh, totally. Um, oh, the, the impact I could, uh, I would have had chills. I just got chills. Yeah. I mean, it was just so moving and I failed to, um, uh, mention, but when I met her, um, like I said, she was, uh, her vision was failing. Um, and she, so she would meet you and then she would grab your face with both hands and feel <laughs> your face and and you're just like whoa like this is a design legend and she's yeah. feeling me like and and the, at the time um the way that she was designing her pottery she was doing paper cutouts um mm -hmm. and she would you know make the profile of what a vase would look like in paper mm -hmm. and then they would make a prototype of it and then she'd feel it and go too thick to you know this part's too thin this curve needs to oh wow that sort of makes me think of like matisse how like you know when he got when he got much older he would still he had a lot of people helping but it came to a point where he sort of had like a ruler or whatever and he'd point like put it up there like no move it down a little bit whatever exactly yep yeah. and at the time she had a couple assistants that were um i think they were uh parsons uh no they were prep people um and um they were caregivers and kind of helping her um you know do all that and manage this crazy studio but Anyways, it was just an amazing experience to, to meet someone who was, um, even despite handicaps, um, yeah. that, that she was, uh, still prolific and sweet and curious and uh, her humility and passion are still one of the high marks in my uh, yeah. career of like, you're like, that's how you can do it. You don't have to be a jerk. You know, like you can, yeah. you can. Well, it, it's, it's like nice people just always being nice people and they're still really good at what they do. And it's almost as if they don't realize or they purposely don't let that 
that uh, level of talent get in the way of just being a generally good person. Exactly. Yep. And, and um, at least in my experience, that, that that's proven to be a really valuable asset throughout my career is, you know, not not only talent, but kindness and seeking <laughs> and seeking out other kind people. Um, I think it can't be discounted that uh, how important that is for uh, a career that lasts, you know, I think, I think in my youth, I didn't, I didn't understand how hard it would be to have a career that lasts decades and uh, being in a position of relevance, as opposed to just like a kind of a, a, someone who fulfills a set of duties. There's a, you know, trying to be a visionary. (laughs) Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this the other day and, and I'm in no position to worry about it just yet, but you know, I was thinking about, I came across this, this idea that not idea, but I was like, I, you know, offhand, maybe, maybe I'm just ignorant to the world of programming and I don't know enough of, of its history and heritage, but like off the top of my head, I can't think of any programmer that is active in the community and they could be speakers or helping without uh, open source projects, et cetera, that are older than maybe 35, right. maybe 40. Like there's a few I can think of that have families and kids, but I, I, don't, I can't think of – there's one guy, his name is Bob Martin. He goes by Uncle Bob. Um, he's in his 60s, I think, and he's still very adamant. He programs a lot and that kind of stuff. But I feel like uh, at least the current state of design and development, it's a, it's a young person's game. And, and that, that that's uh, same could be said for construction, for dentistry, for a lot of stuff. But it makes me think, you know, you hang, you've, you've got to meet with some of these people who have been doing it up until their, into their hundreds. And it – it gives me hope, right? But it's also sort of scary to know that, like, you don't hear of anybody past forty. Sometimes, uh, no, I, I I agree with you, and I think that that's probably um, you know why I I'm concerned about like uh, sustainable uh, creative business models. You know, the, mm-hmm. uh, I wonder if there's like a better version of um, you know. That that allows that le- longevity. I, I mean, yeah. it's kind of weird that as you progress in a career um, in you know development design, that the natural path is to promote you outside of what you're great at. It's yeah. like, cool, you're a great developer. You should be in charge of all the developers. And you're like, but I'm not a manager, and you know, yeah. and. It's, I'm good at code. I'm not good at managing people. Right. Code. Yeah. And, and that's a thing that you can learn. Cool. And it becomes like a, a you know, an asset and, um, you know, part of your skill set, but it still doesn't, um, I don't know. It, it, it changes the, the, what you're doing for a living and, and, yeah. and it can be less fun. All of a sudden, you're doing stuff that isn't uh, what you set out to do, and yeah. and great the thing that, that you've enjoyed doing for twenty years, right? And 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 great that the career uh, evolves too. I I I could, actually couldn't uh, handle doing the same thing forever. Yeah. So it's good, but it's also challenging because um, I think that there is a I don't know. It's also it's also challenging in this. I, I also think that uh, technology um, and kind of the salaries that have been injected into um, the our universe uh, ha, it's changed what 
what we're doing to a degree, and I'm not sure if it's for the better or not. It's great that finally there's an ability to make good money as a designer and developer. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it's also like kind of changed what the game was because it kind of, at least originally when I got into creative, it was kind of like being a musician. It's like, cool, enjoy that. That's all about passion. You know, you're not going to make a lot of money. Like if, yep. if you wanted to make a lot of money, you should go work as a graphic designer at the Yellow Pages. And that's not graphic design, you know, um, it's production, you know, it's more yeah. like you would want to do, you, I don't know, make, make a job out of it, get the, the benefit package, all that stuff. And um, my career path largely has been uh, informed by chasing aesthetics over um, money. Um, and it turned out that um, after whatever, a decade or so of uh, my career, that what it ended up doing is like building a consistency that became a launch pad for any way that I wanted to take it. Because the, the good thing about not taking the money up front is like all that the money up front would have led to is more jobs like that. It would also, yeah. Yeah. also set up a, an existence that was needed those high paying jobs to provide for my mortgage or my car payment or whatever, but keeping things yep. small and keeping things truer to my heart. Um, I think that it helped define that I was a quality and aesthetic driven person, not a cash driven person and true, true to my mother's, um, uh, you know, advice. I did what I loved and the money f followed all of a sudden people are like, you're really good at, um, you know, design and aesthetic stuff. And, um, we've slowly given you the keys, uh, to the management of the business too. And you're not blowing that. So cool. <laughs> here's more, you know, uh, um, yeah. and it, it's funny because, uh, you know, some of the stuff that I did previously was for smaller clients, you know, uh, Herman Miller's big, but they're not a fortune 50 company. Yeah. Yeah. And as I got to the fortune 50 companies, which has really just been the last, maybe, I don't know, 10 years. Um, it's very different. It, 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 uh, the, the pace is different. Mm -hmm. It's also the last 10 years, you know, the, um, the ramifications of social media and this kind of like, uh, the urgency of the, the general urgency of the internet is, uh, changed the, um, what we do from purely craft to like a very urgent craft, you know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> I, I, I feel like it could be summed up in dribble, right? Dribble was a platform to get feedback and criticism. And now it is a platform to show off, like a cute design. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So I don't know. Um, it's, it's, it's funny how much it, it's changed and also like what we, what you do changes too, at least on my personal voyage, um, the evolution from a designer to say like a creative director and now whatever it is that I am that, which could be, uh, I guess I, I'm well, I'm more of an entrepreneur than I thought I was. Um, which is weird. But uh, I think that uh, 
Oh, whatever. I'm losing track of my thoughts, but I think <laughs> it just was. Uh, oh, it was that I for a long time I was a, a designer, and my my goal was essentially building a portfolio. Like that's yep. all that was in my head. Yep. Well, you get to a certain point, and you can't have a portfolio. Like mm-hmm. I'm now a creative director. Uh, you know, and have been for a long time, but I mean, truly like a, whatever agency level creative director. Um, and all of a sudden your stuff is all NDA and there's, you know, yeah. there's a secrecy, like most, most people in my position don't have portfolios. Yeah. And even more so, it's not a portfolio of the work you've done yourself. It's, 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 a it's work that you've directed. Yeah, exactly. It's not just yours. It's a bunch of other people's stuff too. Exactly. And so it's, it's kind of funny because, um, it changes, like you've pursued this like personification of self through a portfolio yep. forever. And then you no longer show that. And now I don't have, when I have new business conversations, I never show my work. Ever. Yeah, I it's I think it's all it's it's very self gratifying, right? It's like I think the portfolio is not only it, it's to woo the client or the potential client, but it's also sort of to woo yourself. I look at mine. I I never would have thought I use Southern Living. That's an easy example. They get it's a owned by Time Inc. Time Inc. is a fucking enormous company, and that site alone gets like five to ten million uniques a month. And I build a site that's like much faster than their last site. That's a pretty, I mean, for me, that felt like that was probably one of the bigger sites I've ever worked on. Uh, but there's going to, like you said, there's going to come a point where that, I don't care about that anymore. But right now, I that feels really good. It feels almost like I've been able to put a notch in my belt now. Right, right. Yeah. Um, and that, a slight aside, but it, I also think that's interesting too, because in this long tail of uh, design and a, a career, um, more importantly, um, designer development, um, either one is how, like the, the things that we make, the artifacts that we create, um, like some of them have stood the test of time. Some of my early web stuff really does still look good. Um, because, because there was a simplicity that was baked into it that, um, but it's like 800 by 600 resolution (laughs) and a screenshot in Netscape. Right. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, and so it's kind of weird. There isn't a, a sense of longevity to the things that we make and that I'm a little bit concerned about for, yeah. because what's, what is design history going to look back on in my career? Like look, if I even, even whatever have a place in design history, but I mean like one of the flash in the pan things that I'm known for is parallax. That site doesn't Nike Better World doesn't exist anymore. Oh wait, is that the super fucking dope parallax one where the shoe folds up? Yeah, that's how. That, that was you. Yeah. Oh man, do you know how many times I reference that site? Oh really? God, that's one. Awesome. I feel like an idiot because I didn't know what you were talking about first, but now I don't even care. Yeah. Um, I didn't so- know that you did it. That site's fucking amazing. I don't know. Everyone was, you know, that was best in class. That was like a cr- crazy, awesome, well designed, immersive experience. Well, thank you. Okay. Thank. Yeah, uh, that was dope. That that was uh <laughs> that was the test project that Wyden gave me. Um, when we were talking about a design director position and, um, and I brought in, uh, you know, when it came down to building the site, it was like, who's going to build it? And they're like, we don't know. And I was like, well, you should hire my friend Ian Coyle. And so, um, Ian and I were freelancing on projects together. And so yep. he, 
did it and uh, we had a rough idea of how parallax could work to get people <laughs> through the storytelling journey. And we actually kind of had a, uh, during the photo shoot, um, there was a moment of frustration where uh, another creative director and I, who were at the shoot, uh, kicked over a pile of tennis shoes. Um, and we were like, oh, that looks cool. And so we started throwing tennis shoes in the air and um, snapping them. And um, I was sending snapshots of uh, outtakes of the photo shoot directly to Ian, who was working on a, cold, a coded prototype. Um, yeah. I was sending him shots from my phone and he uh, was updating the path and like giving me a prototype. Uh, he was uh, updating assets and then giving me a path to look at uh, a prototype to look at. Yep. And uh, he mislinked uh, instance of uh, we had a background that had a parallax effect in it and he yep. mislinked uh, background image and we had two cases of the same background image. One had a clipping path on it. One didn't. Mm -hmm. And we were like, that looks cool. And he was like, what if we change the the um, scroll speed on one of these? And we we're like, yeah. And so all of a sudden there was this accidental, like, that's cool. These two things moving at different speeds. And we had this sense of like, that's an opportunity. And uh, all of a sudden that thing, you know, it became the basis of the design and, it was launched and uh, it was actually, I think, launched by a tweet that I did. Um, oh, gosh. And, really? Yeah. And it was, they thought it was going to be a small thing, but the design community really grabbed onto it and it proliferated yeah. quickly. And then um, I believe the first day they had like a million visits to that site. Holy cow. Uh, it really blew up. And um, so all of a sudden, you know, Maybe maybe a couple weeks later, a month later, I got a phone call from um, Fast Company, and they were like, "Hey, we want to put you in this list of um, influential designers." And I was like, "Oh, cool! You know, the sounds sounds neat. You know, and they're like, what do you?" Yeah. And, and I was like, "What's this about?" And they're like, "Oh, well, you know, can we? It's that site that you did for Nike." And I was like, "Oh, well, that wasn't just mm -hmm. me. That was uh, me and my friend Ian." They're like, "Yeah, oh, cool. Well, we'll add them to the list too." And I was like, "Great." Well, I didn't know that it was going to be a list of like the fifty most influential designers in America. Holy cow! And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And that they had a whole issue dedicated to design American design and that we were on the short list alongside people like Frank Gehry and Paola Antonelli and, you know, giants of yeah, yeah, yeah. design. People never um, probably would have put yourself next to. No way. Yeah. Never, never in my life would I imagine that I would have been on the, those lists. And, um, and, uh, then, uh, that's what led to our acquisition by huge um, is gotcha. they were friends with fast company and uh, they were like, Hey, tell us more about you guys. We're interested in, yeah. and uh, you so know, I, it's, it's interesting because I'm going to change pace a little bit. I, you brought up the better world and I was like, let me go find a link. Cause I want to link that in the show notes. Um, and I can't find a link to it. And you were talking about this idea of like digital artifacts, right. Or, or what if, what a, uh, portfolio is composed of. For me, as a developer, it's all live links right now. Uh, but when Southern Living redesigns again, it's not mine. 
Um, and I feel like what used to happen in design is that you would have artifacts, right? You would have the the negatives, right? Of maybe if you were doing a font or working with a font, you'd have some kind of a negative. You you would have sort of the the cutting room floor scraps to compose of like portfolio pieces or to comprise the narrative. And now we have domain names that might expire to URLs that may get overwritten or get deleted and that kind of stuff. So it's much harder, I think, to... And even your comps are like, like my old comps yeah. from the, like, say, Herman Miller, those are JPEGs that are on a CD. And they were yeah. probably, you know, I don't even know if I can open the file, the original file. And, you know, to, to me, to me, so that idea has been something I've had trouble with recently. Um, I say recently, the past two years. You think about uh, great design in the world. Right. And you, you think of Herman Miller chairs, you think of uh, what's it like a Hans Wagner swivel chair or like the stuff that Paul McCobb did um, in like America to bring really good uh, mid-century design to the masses. I actually have two Paul McCobb side tables because I love his work. Um, and you, you or you think about like the Hans Wagner like Papa Bear chair, which is a twenty thousand dollar just like lazy boy, basically. Um, and these are artifacts of design, uh, of an era, of a culture, of a heritage, of a history, of a moment in time um, that lives and surpasses the moment in which it was created and popular. Now with digital shit, we can't really do that. You might if you keep your if you keep your if you keep paying your server bill, but in twenty years, I don't know that anyone is going to have the artifact of what was Southern Living when. Expand the room. The agency I worked at helped design and uh, redesign and develop it, and that to me is sort of scary because what are those history books going to? I mean, those history books, air quote books, right? Because it's probably not going to be a paper book. They're going to have photos or some kind of tangible things. But the old old time of design and the old time of development, I feel like the artifacts were a little bit more tangible, and now they're not, um, and they they move very quickly too. Right, and and I, and I find that a little worrisome. I mean. Not trying to be like too uh, puritanical about you know the things that we make being like so damn special, but like if there isn't if there isn't any permanence, it starts feeling like digital door hangers to me. Like absolutely, and I, I got I got into design to. Um, it's funny we we all get into the, these creative pursuits um, because we think we can make things better. There's an op there's an implied optimism. And um, so if you don't believe in better and also having the ability to like look back and reflect for that comparison <clears throat> of like progress, I am making a difference. The needle is moving, you know, yeah. and uh, it's a little worrying to me because uh, uh, it just... I, I guess I just wonder what are those things like, how are we going to understand? And maybe, and maybe that's great. I mean, maybe that's just like the natural evolution of things. And probably people freaked out like when television was a new thing and they're like, Oh my God, what's going to happen to film? And you know, and, yeah. Yeah. but so I don't know. But I the, mean, film, the film, the film then still existed. You still had the film reel. That's right? true. That's true. And there, um, it's you know I even think about that. It's it's kind of even the the hilarity of like looking at say maybe an old uh, whatever a clip show or something or a news show that had old footage and uh, yeah. you know from four years ago it's not HD. 
like a video yeah. like a, it looks like crap imperative terrible and you're like wait but this wasn't that long ago and this is like some cell phone footage and the pixels are like you know yeah, they look like a thousand pixels wide yeah. each pixel you know you're like what the hell but it's interesting yeah i, I just yeah uh, uh it's yeah. interesting and it's scary it's also something that we can't really stop as bad as that sounds um uh, like if, when I first came to this thought, I was like, why not make a database like an IMDB of people who have people who have been a part of making things. So version one of kingcoil.com, right? Version two of kingcoil.com, the Nike better world, uh, the version two of that Southern living one, two, three, throughout its whole iteration, right? How can you document the people who made these things? Uh, but even then, if you put it on the internet and the internet goes away, that shit's gone too. You know, what I, mean? <laughs> I, yeah, I, I even have like uh, old projects of my my own that I've tried to like uh, continue to archive and have a live archive of. Um, mm-hmm. And it's difficult to keep it going because uh, as server technologies migrate or WordPress updates or whatever the deal yeah, is, sometimes like, it's just not compatible. Enough. Right. MySQL update. And then you're like, damn it, everything broke. And all I was trying <laughs> to do was like uh, update the image database so that it was attached to Amazon because the AWS wasn't a thing when I launched that site. Yeah. And yeah. now I've screwed up everything, you know, anyways, but, uh, yeah. that it's, I don't know. There's nothing we can do. Um, all right. There, I've, I've three remaining questions cause we've been talking for a while and I've enjoyed it, but I want to make sure you get to enjoy your evening too. Cause it is a Saturday. Um, the first of the three is if you can go back in time, sort of like back to the future kind of thing, right? And go talk to younger Dwayne. Is there anything that you, any advice you'd give yourself? Yeah. And it's the advice that I'm, advice that I'm still trying to learn uh, or teach myself right now. Um, uh, You know, as you, uh, as you know, uh, maybe your listeners don't know, but I resigned from um, my job as the head of, huge King Coil, um, alongside Ian in December of this last year. And I'm trying to pursue a new career that's a little bit more, uh, purpose driven. And in, in that I'm really trying very hard to, uh, be the best version of myself that I can. I have this, uh, but I, uh, uh, so the advice I would give to my, uh, younger self is like, Quit try, don't try to be an image of um, what you think you should be. Just be as much you as possible because yep. ultimately that uniqueness is what's mm-hmm. going to propel your career forward and it's going to be your special sauce. Like no one that can means- emulate it. Yep. But I will say that <laughs> like yeah. the lesson part of that for me now and the struggle for me now is like what if I am at the best um, – myself that I can be and everybody hates it. Yeah. Or it's not good enough. Right. You know, so I think that that's like a, whatever, uh, a level of a new level of kind of maturity and fearlessness that I'm trying to interject into my career now is like how there's, I feel like there's a place where, um, my, uh, the potential of my career, my happiness and my financial stability can find Mm -hmm. a good stasis where I can be the most valuable I can be to the world 
as well as friends and my family and my wife and things like that. But, um, and have my needs met both financially and my, my kind of like my spiritual needs where, you know, my, my, my creative batteries recharged, you know, there's enough openness in my, uh, mind because of financial stability and the experiences that I have that, um, I can be the best I can be create, you know, creatively and the best friend, the best mentor, the best, uh, student teacher, all that. So makes sense is, um, now the second question is, uh, if a young designer, uh, a budding designer came to you and said, Dwayne, do you have any advice for me? Is there anything else that you would say or anything addition or anything differently? Mm. No, I guess not. I mean, I think one of the, the, um, one of the core tenets that's always been important to to me in a career and uh, I, the the thing that has uh, got me to this point is uh, passion is probably the most important aspect of a career um, in uh, any kind of diverse or in any kind of entrepreneurial field because if you, it's the it's the kind of thing that will fill the gaps when when you lose a client or a job goes south or you have to stay up all night or, you know, whatever happens, it's the thing that fills that gap and gets you to the next day and <laughs> keeps you from giving up, <laughs> you know? And it, yeah, that makes sense. And it's weird because you wouldn't think that that would actually be uh, such an important ingredient because it feels like it's a, about what you know and what you can do, but actually it's your, um, your persistence. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, I feel like it sounds like, um, or the, the way I interpret what you're saying about passion is it's the desire to keep doing something for the sake of doing it. Yes. Yes. Um, not, maybe not for the fame, not for the money, not for the stress, not for the, the good or bad, but because you strict just straight up enjoy doing it. That's it. And I think that's, 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 uh, that's hard. That's, it's a tough one, right? It's, it's, I think it's something that I fight with daily. And I, I feel like a lot of people in our industry fight with it. And by our industry, I mean, design and development. Uh, I think mostly because it, the, the industry now, I think the standard is if you're a designer, you should design at work and design at home. You should design all the time. Um, basically perpetuating burnout to some degree, right? Uh, because it's like, oh, no, you love it. You're a designer. You are committed to your craft, blah, 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 blah. Now, where that balances with, like, the desire to do it for the sake of doing it, I don't know. But that's neither here nor there, and I don't know that we can we, we can suss that out in this conversation. Yeah, but but, but you're right. You're, you're, you're honing on, in on something important, and that uh, I think that the uh, if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life is – kind of a bullshit notion i mean because yeah. you get paid because it's hard um yeah. and, and it is work um and sure some people carve out that existence but you can also like taint your passion oh yeah it happens a lot right i mean that that is burnout right it's doing it to the point i i've heard stories of it happening a lot in sports where someone, someone's identity is so closely tied to the sport that they play that they no longer really know who they are. And then they have to like step away from that game 
Uh, I, you know, this, I was reading a story about a, a, a very good WNBA player. Uh, and she, she was, uh, she got a scholarship to UConn. UConn's the best school for women's basketball in the country. Um, and she didn't go. She took a year off. She's like, she's like, I was, she's like, I couldn't define myself outside of basketball for a really long time. She's like, I needed a break from that shit. So it's hard. This stuff is, I don't know. It's tough stuff. I, I know we're, we designers and developers are not the only ones who deal with that problem. No, I actually, uh, uh, last night saw a show on Vice Land where, uh, I think his name is Daniel Norris, a, a baseball player for the Blue Jays and, um, he's a successful hot player and he, uh, lives in a van and oh, I know that guy and yeah, I was just yeah. like that's amazing and he was like just because I make more money doesn't mean that I need to spend more yeah, and I was like very true. wow Smart yeah and I think that there's like a, a perspective I don't know you're, you're you're getting close to a really important perspective and I think that that uh, we're getting distracted by the lure of cash and there's nothing wrong with money and making money but it, but yeah. it, changes the equation and can um yeah anyways yeah so yeah um the third question i'll ask you it's called this the secret fun time question it's supposed to have absolutely nothing to do with the stuff that we talked about um and i think i have i think i have one all right i i have two and you can pick one okay uh the first one is a little bit of a softball pitch um did you have a favorite animal when you were growing up? Like uh, the animals that you guys took care of? Uh-huh. Um, and if so, what was it? And then the second one is if you could spend your life playing a video game forever, it, like out of enjoyment, is there one video game that you would play forever? And it can't be, uh, can't be Quake, obviously. <laughs> right. Um, well, the video game one is probably closer to my heart because I'm just a, a, a video game nerd. Uh, I started programming games on a Commodore 64 recording oh, them really? to a cassette tape. That was, that was my awesome. an, initiation into programming when I was, I don't know, 10 or something like that. Um, but anyways, so game would be my choice and it would be uh, Tempest. Um, Tempest. I haven't heard of that one. It's a stand-up arcade game um, from probably the eighties, and uh, it's amazing. It's got the. It's a vector um, graphics-based game. It's like in the vein of Asteroids in terms of its graphic style. Okay. And it has this uh, these circular geometric forms that uh, you have this character that basically shoots down this, this tunnel of these geometric forms. Um, anyways, it's amazing. That's really cool. It's super amazing. I uh, I can't. I, I have to find uh, it now because it's. Uh, I believe. Yeah, man. I believe it, it got. I mean, I'll put it in the show notes. I believe it's in the MoMA now. Um, oh really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> It's it's just a cool cool video game and it, it uh, there it is Atari game. Yeah, shoot it shoot it over to me Slack or whatever, and I'll well one I want to see until I put it in the show notes. Um, Dwayne, how can people get in touch with you if you want them to, whether Twitter, email, whatever? You can reach me at at Dwayne King on Twitter and uh, Dwayne at kingdwayne dot com uh, for email and. I'm generally, I'm always uh, welcome to meet people. So happy to have conversations. Yeah. 
Well, Dwayne, thanks for joining me on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. This has been a very fun story. Thanks, um, man. Thanks for yeah, having me. Thank, of course, man. Thanks for your time. Of course. Have a good one. Thanks. You too.